Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and today I'm joined by Randy Myers. Randy, how are you, sir? Good, Julian. Thanks. How are you? Oh, man, fantastic. First off, I always tell everybody whenever they come on here, thank you. And chances are, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, ladies and gentlemen, you'll have seen this man's name pop up in quite a few shows. Um, primarily the one that, that sticks out to me, sticks out to me the most, uh, was always Samurai Jack. Um, so before we get to Samurai Jack and everything you've really worked on, I want to know at what point in your life did you really start looking at art as, you know, a possible job down the road? So when I was in high school, I was primarily an athlete and I played sports a lot. Um, I was born and raised here in Southern California, and uh, I think it was like my junior year of high school, they, they started encouraging you to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life, and I remember being in the guide, guidance counselor's office and looking through a series of books, and there was a description of a job that said um, screen cartoonist, and that kind of sparked my interest because the only other thing I really enjoyed doing other than athletics was I did like to draw. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and primarily I did it on my own. I took uh, art classes at the high school, but they weren't very, very good. Um, but the people around me encouraged me and my parents encouraged me. So I liked to do that. And then I realized in the description, it said that there was this school that was 30 minutes south of where I was living called California Institute of the Arts. And uh, so I set up a, a tour and drove down. And this was probably 1984. And I did the tour. I didn't realize it at the time, but the things I was seeing were Pete Doctor's work, and I saw, you know, Brad Bird's work on the walls. I was walking, and I didn't know it at the time who these guys were because they were just students. Um, so I applied right away and was thoroughly just rejected. Um, <laughs> it, actually, it took me like three attempts to get into Cal Arts, which says something because. You know, if you're passionate and you really want to do something, you stick with it. So between 1985 and 1990, I applied three times and I got in finally in 1990, which turned out to be a blessing <clears throat> because CalArts, oh, and I, I mean, uh, during <clears throat> those two or three years before I got in, I just said, I'm going to do anything I can to keep a, a pencil in my hand. You know, I took classes, just, just immersed myself but the year I got in, turns out that was the gift because we had 72 freshmen in my class. And the members of my class include Gendy Tartakovsky, uh, Rob Renzetti, Sergio Pablos, John Sanford, um, Miles Thompson, Conrad Vernon. I mean, it goes on and on. Dean Wellens, John Rippa. These guys were just incredibly talented. And um, I think I've heard you guys talk about the imposter syndrome yeah <laughs> right away it was that was what it was for me I was looking around going, oh my god these guys are amazing 
Um, meanwhile, I, I would hear these conversations and realize, wait, this is really where I'm supposed to be because, you know, they were nerding out on cartoons and video games. And I was kind of a closeted cartoon fan. Yeah. Um, so it, it really gave me an opportunity to share my thoughts and pick their brains. And that, you know, the education I got at my time at CalArts was minuscule compared to the influence that I got from the guys around me. The yeah. things I learned uh, watching them, talking to them. Um, you know, Gendy was another one. He, he's a student of film. Another guy, Lou Romano, we were always amazed about because he was so immersed in film, not just cartoons, but film. He loved filmmaking. And it made me appreciate it even more and want to learn more about everything that had to do, uh, not just with animation, but filmmaking, which turns out, you know, animation is the bridge between filmmaking and, and painting or drawing and art. It just kind of combines those two things. And I, yeah, I cherished my time there. I had an amazing time with all those guys. And to this day, that's my network. That's my, the people I keep in touch with all the time. We're, we're, we talk, well, we talk a little less now because of COVID and because everybody has families and they're grown and has responsibilities, but still we keep in touch as much as possible. Um, but that time was just a, an amazing time. And um, looking back, I, I try to tell the kids at CalArts that I talk to now that are in school or coming out of school, I said, you know, that's your network. You gotta appreciate the opportunity. Oh, the other thing that you, you'll never get outside of CalArts is, Cal is the time when you get to create anything and everything and you're the only person that gets to decide that. Because once you go into the industry, you're servicing somebody else's vision, somebody else's idea, somebody else's um, idiosyncrasies about how they want something. But when you're at school, that film you make is 100% you, you make the choices, you make the decisions. So you have to like really cherish and appreciate that. So, you know, but growing up here in Southern California, always loving to draw, going outside to draw. Um, I'm a total nerd for anything behind the scenes when it comes to entertainment industry. So I was always watching those behind the scenes of how Disney would make a movie, a television show, um, or any movies that are behind the scenes like Swimming with Sharks or What Just Happened or The Player. I loved all that behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. To this day, I still love that, which is why I appreciate what you're doing you know, so much is because you're having people talk who really people don't know their faces. They might know their names, but hearing the stories they have about all the behind the scenes stuff, um, hopefully it'll inspire other people and they'll maybe grow their own dreams and follow their dreams and uh, maybe get into animation one day. That's one thing I really hope because one thing that you hit on that I absolutely love about this is I get to talk to you guys and gals that, that like I told you before we hit play or record, um, I get to talk to the people that kind of shaped and molded, you know, the world I grew up in. Because if it wasn't for shows like Samurai Jack, if it wasn't for shows like Ed and Eddie and Hey Arnold and the Powerpuff Girls and all of these other cartoons, um, you know, I don't want to say my moral compass would have been off. But my moral compass probably would have been off because I, I, I fell back on a lot of these shows as, you know, somebody like Jack, just taking him and, and like, we'll take Jack and we'll take Arnold from Hey Arnold. I looked at them and they were like always, their, their moral compass was always pointing north. 
right? So I want to make sure that, hey, if, if they're a good people, I got to be a good people, right? So if I'm hanging around bad people, I'm like, oh, Jack wouldn't do this. Arnold wouldn't do this. So I got to make sure. So like I said, you guys influenced a lot of, a lot of my life. And if there's one thing that I can do and is, is giving back and then letting the people see your face and see Robert's face. And I mean, we've seen Craig's face that is not a slight against Craig, but we've seen the big guys and gals here, right? The, the, the creators of the show. We've seen a lot of the voice actors, but what a lot of people don't get to see is the people that were in the trenches like yourself and like Robert on a consistent basis, you know, whether it's banging out storyboards, banging out dialogue or writing a script, you guys put in so many hours for this, and I feel like you guys are really the unsung heroes of the animation industry. And going back one second to something you had just mentioned when you when you said you talked to uh, the, the you know the the new wave of animators coming in from uh, Cal Arts and everything like that, knowing what you know now specifically about how your life has turned out, right? All the 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 ups and downs that you've had throughout your entire career. If you could go back and give yourself advice. And specifically speaking to the students, right? So if you're going to give those students advice too, what's one thing that you wish you would have known when you were going through animation school that you know now? Wow. Um, it's a loaded question, I know. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there, a lot to unpack. Well, um, well, you, you just can't give up. You got to be passionate about this stuff. Um, and you got to rem remember why you got into it in the first place. So um, I think reconnecting with that initial passion and reminding yourself on a regular basis, because there's going to be days where it's going to be rough. Yeah. Drawings aren't going to be as good as you would like. Um, dealing with other people won't go as easy as you would like. Um, ideas you might suggest might get rejected, but reminding yourself that you still, you have a passion for it, stick with it. Um, I still, to this day, tell people uh, it, it beats a real job. Working in this industry beats a real job, hands down. Um, and what we, you know, again, with that passion, reminding yourself what this industry is, what animation is, it's like kind of the closest thing you can get to actually making something in your imagination become real. Yeah. Um, because you can imagine a lot more uh, strange unique things then are exist in reality but in animation anything's possible yes you know a sponge can come to life um uh you know a character can be thrown back into time there's so many different things that can't happen in reality so whether it's uh how something looks or a storyline it's still the case that it can only happen in animation and so animation is the closest connection I think we have into our imagination. And I always was kind of fascinated with the words imagination and animation and how they kind of sound yeah. similar. It's just one of those fun little things I always remind myself of. But yeah, the passion, you got to have passion. I, when I was coming up in the industry, I kept, <laughs> I kept seeing people who would give up or get frustrated. And I kind of thought, good, leave. <laughs> one less person I have to compete with. Um, and as long as I continued to be passionate and, uh, you know, was driven about it and trying to be better, I think I would make it. And, you know, to this day, I, I still want to learn and I'm learning. I'm nowadays, instead of learning people who have more experience than me, I find I'm learning from people who are entering the industry 
They have all of these unique skills and influences that I had no idea about. So I'm listening to them and going, oh, I've never heard about that, you know, what, uh, VTuber, YouTuber, uh, video, video game, all this uh, comic books, um, web comic. And I'm like, oh, tell me, I'm going I'm to go check it out. Uh, that only benefits me to, to expand, you know, my view of things and my awareness of what's going on out there. I think Fred Cyber talked about that with the evolution of humor. And I think it's so true because the things that influenced Gendy and myself, there's a different group coming up that their influences are going to influence the next generation after them. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm always trying to see, and I know you have kids, I have a kid too, and I'm always asking him, what are you watching? What are you into? What are you interested in? And, and going and checking that stuff out too, because I want to see him. I'm always interested in learning and getting better. Yeah, you got it. That this I don't want to say it's one of the best things about having a kid because there's so many better things about having kids, but they are that, oh man, that direct connection to a younger generation, right? Because I'm 32, right? And I'm not that old, but you know, there's a huge difference from like a 32-year-old, a 25-year-old to an 18-year-old, right? Those generational gaps, they grew up with a different set of music, a different set of, you know, I mean, just 10 years ago, I mean, yeah, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we were just barely starting to scratch the surface on smartphones, right? Now we have a phone that is essentially, I mean, you can't live without it. For most people, you can't live without it between, you know, emails, phone calls, you know, looking something up bouncing this, figuring this out. I mean, you just can't go anywhere without it. So having that, like I said, that, that, that pick line, if you will, to somebody that is seeing something different, that doesn't watch the same, then it also thinks differently than you. It broadens your horizons. Cause like, Oh shit, man, for an 11 year old, you're smart as hell. And that's not calling my, my son dumb, but I'm like for 11 year old, you look at stuff. So interestingly explain to me why you think that way, because you just changed my mind on something. I probably wouldn't have you know, looked at twice. Um, it's been quite a few shows that he's introduced me, introduced me to and movies and music and stuff like that. I'm like, wow, if it wouldn't have been for you, I would not have listened or watched this. So it, it's, it's cool seeing that, you know, we're going to jump. Uh, if you guys haven't noticed in these, uh, these episodes we do, um, I try to hit a little bit of everything just so we can get every fan base here. So, you know, if we're jumping forward and jumping back, don't get, you know, don't get, uh, What's the word? Don't get upset. I just want to make sure we hit a little bit for each fan base. Um, plus, it's not a yes, no interview. It's more of a conversational chat about always my guest. And like I said, today's guest is Randy, and he's worked on a lot and a lot and a lot of cool shit, right? So uh, when I reached out to you or when Robert told me he was talking to you and he said, can we make the connection? I was like, absolutely. The first thing I thought of was Samurai Jack, right? And then I started looking at your, at your credits, and then I noticed because we see him in the background and then we also see him in my background, two of them. And like I told you at the beginning, my first tattoo is the Iron Giant. Um, I want to know how. Please just tell me anything and everything you can about the Iron Giant. This is my favorite animated. It still makes me cry, Randy. I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit it. This movie still make whenever he says Superman, I still tear up and get glassy. eyed. My kid calls me a baby. Every single time he sees me do it, but that's okay. Like I said, the Iron Giant is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, how did this one come about? How did you start working on the Iron Giant? So uh, back at that time, I was working at Turner Feature Animation. My entry into the animation industry was through uh, an internship 
when Ted Turner bought Cartoon Network for the for the library, they all he was also convinced into producing uh, long form animated features as well. So at the time Turner Feature Animations was starting up, I think they just wanted some cheap, inexpensive help. <laughs> their, their first movie was The Page Master with Macaulay Culkin and Christopher Lloyd. Beautiful. Um, live action and animation. So uh, I applied and got into the internship, went through the internship, got to do an entry level position as an in-betweener on that. Then after that, I transitioned to Catstone Dance that came up right after with the director, Mark Dindle. But shortly after we, towards the end of when we were finishing Cats, there was a merger that happened um, and we merged with Warner Brothers and they were gonna, they didn't want two feature animation divisions. Um, Warner feature was finishing up Space Jam, the original Michael Jordan Space Jam at the time. So they made an offer to a lot of the animators, including myself, if we wanted to transition to Warner's features, we could. Um, they did an open house to kind of present, here's all the projects we have in development. And Brad Bird actually was on at Turner Feature Animation at the time developing a project that never got made. I think in some interviews I've seen with him, he said, he's kind of set it aside. It's called Ray Gun. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of film noir detective movie uh, that was kind of, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and kind of Blade Runner about yeah. a, a, a gumshoe in the future called Raymond Gunn, and he was pursuing an actual Ray Gunn. So Brad was developing that at Turner at the time. With the merger, it didn't seem like it was gonna move ahead. And Brad went through the open house too and saw all these projects. And one of the projects was, um, I think it was called The Iron Man. I don't know if it had changed to The Iron Giant just yet, but it was based on the book that Pete yeah. Townsend owned the rights to. And there was an image that struck um, Brad's interest and that sparked something with him. So he worked out a deal and started developing that. So when I finished up on Kant's, um, I rolled on to the project they had going on at the time at Warner's Features, which was called Quest for Camelot. And that was an interesting experience and it ties into my, my time on Iron Giant. So, so I went on to Quest for Camelot for two reasons. Um, one, the director was gonna be Bill Croyer and Bill Croyer was best known at the time for directing Fern Gully. Yes. Bill was a very good director, very smart. So I thought, cool. And then a friend of mine introduced me to an animator named Dan Wagner. And Dan was gonna do the two-headed dragon character on Quest. And I thought, oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. And he showed me the stuff that he was gonna, um, that he had, he had developed. Um, they had some scratch dialogue, he did some tests. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on that. This would be great. Well, the unfortunate part about Quest is Bill came to an impasse with the executives at Warner Brothers and stepped away from the project. And a junior director who had a deal in place, they kind of put him uh, as the director and his name was Frederick Duchot. And this was Frederick's first time directing an animated feature. And it became a bittersweet kind of project because I got to do a lot of stuff and work with this guy, Dan Wagner, who's phenomenal. Dan Wagner is this amazing animator who was from Canada originally, wasn't classically trained. This was a traditional uh, pencil and paper project. 
And Dan did not animate traditionally. He animated with a mechanical pencil and he didn't flip multiple pages. He'd flip like two pages and he'd lift up and place, but his stuff was just mind blowingly good. Um, he was hilarious too. So I loved working with him for that. But because of the director change, I saw the difference in the directing style of Frederick. And he was, um, I would refer to it now as a little insecure. So he didn't open things up a lot to the rest of the crew. He wasn't good on, at the time, on taking suggestions or thoughts from people and seeing if it would make the project better. And in the end, a lot of us who worked on it, we felt like, oh, this is not what we kind of signed on for. But, you know, we fought through and got it done and delivered it. And it's, it's nice because some people, they really enjoy that particular project. Now, the reason that that has a strong influence on Iron Giant is because Brad was developing Iron Giant with an amazing group of people, Dean Wellens, Tony Fuccelli, um, Mark Andrews, uh, Jeff Lynch. These guys are just phenomenal. And they were ready to go into production. And a lot of us that worked on Quest also rolled on to that one. And I had no idea how different it was going to be. Brad Bird is an amazing director to work for. And I say that because he knows his shit. He's smart as hell. He appreciates the medium. He appreciates the people that do it. Um, but I saw it firsthand with the difference of what we call director time specifically. Director time was a period where if you had something to show the director, mm -hmm. we would all gather in a room and we'd project our work um, through a computer and a projector onto a, a pull down screen in a large room and he would give us feedback. And I didn't really appreciate till we had an accident happen one day where the screen, like it's like a screen that used to have in your classroom, the screen wouldn't come down. Mm -hmm. And some smart production person said, well, let's just push in a whiteboard and we'll project it on a whiteboard, a dry erase board. And that right there was the genius. Because Brad realized, oh, oh, it's on a whiteboard. So I can take a dry erase marker and I can draw the expression I want or the pose I want. And there's there was no miscommunication. He would like block the screen on the, it's like, hold it on that frame, block the screen and you go, here's the expression I want on Hogarth. And everyone like, oh my God, that's, that's genius. I know exactly what you want now. Um, he always had his brain trust next to him, which was like Tony Fuccelli, Dean Wallens, Jeff Lynch, um, Mark Andrews. And if he wasn't sure of something, he'd turn to them and go, what do you guys think? Well, what I saw was PAs, in-betweens, anybody who said, oh, I really like that, or I think that could be better, Brad would listen to them very respectfully and, you know, lots of uh, very courtesy, he had a lot of courtesy, let them uh, make their suggestions. He never, nobody ever felt bad about speaking up. Um, but Brad would appreciate their feedback. And if there was, if he felt like it was a better way to do it, a different way, he could explain that. And everybody was like, oh yeah, you're right. He did sure. it in a way that you're like, well, if I expressed myself, but he's right. His vision, his, his thought about how it should play out makes way more sense. Yeah. But he would give everybody that chance. And I loved that about him. It was, but what also did is he built this camaraderie, this motivation in everybody. Everybody wanted to make that film the best they could. Yeah. And there were times when 
when Brad would come in and go, okay, the lot is trying to cut our budget for whatever reason, we got to get this other stuff out. Um, and a lot of times we found out later what he was doing is he was cutting the animatics to look like animation so he could take it to the lot and go, well, it's already you know pretty far along in animation. You know, we've already spent a bunch of money on it. We might as well keep it in. So Brad was, because they didn't, they didn't know the process. He knew that and he used that to his, to his advantage. Um, but he was so smart. And then I also watched Brad in his talks, whether it was with story or the animators or the directors, he was always, he's like a chess uh, champion who's thinking two or three or four steps down the line. And he's thinking sound effects, he's thinking music, he's thinking color, he's thinking mood. mood. He, in his brain, he knew about all that, you know, emotional stuff that everybody gets caught up in. That was his thing, you know, his, his ET influences or his close encounter or whatever it is. He knew where he wanted to pull everybody's heartstrings and whether it was through color or an emotion. Um, you know, one of the themes of that movie is what if a gun had a soul? That was, he always mentioned that to us. And that was always uh, in our minds, but we didn't really, I think realize until we saw the scene where the hunters kill the deer. And Sydney, who animated that all that deer stuff, um, man, she spent so much time. And it, nowadays, you can do those antlers in 3D and motion track it or something. I watched her sweat over every pose of that deer turning its head and everything. Uh, and it's it's like in an instant, it's on camera, uh, but it's amazing the artistry she put into the, those little moments. And then we saw the emotion that that moment drew out of the audience too. So uh, that that movie was very special. And then my, my supervisor on that show, here's something a lot of people don't know. So Brad's an old school guy. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I apologize for running on and on, but- Oh, no, I you're perfectly fine. No, you're perfectly fine. I love this. When I don't have to say anything, because there's one thing I hate getting comments by, like, hey, man, this is more about your guests than you. I was like, yeah, but you got to build an intimate relationship here. You're, you're talking, you're giving, you're taking, you know, so it, it's it's very cyclical, man. He says some stuff, and then we talk. That's what a conversation is. I love when I can just sit back, relax, and listen to shit I love, man. So please, don't ever apologize for that okay. type of all right. Uh, well, so on Iron Giant, Brad's initial vision was to have sequence directors. Mm -hmm. um, there was that's the way Disney used to do it, uh, and Brad knew that because he's a student of uh, not only the medium, but he's a student of Disney from his time there. He he knew a lot of this stuff. Um, so I was cast to be on the crew, and my supervisor was Stefan Frank. He was my supervising director, and the idea was to take the movie cut it up into sequences, hand a sequence to a director and their crew and let them animate that entire thing and all the characters that were involved. Now, we still had character leads, which meant if I had a scene that had um, Hogarth, mm -hmm. Tony Fuccelli would have to go over my drawings to make sure he was on model and his expression was correct and his proportions were correct, all that stuff. If I had a scene with Dean McCoppin, Chris Sove would have to look over all my Dean's stuff. So regardless of the sequence, if I had a if I had a scene with that character, that supervising animator would have to go over that anyway. But over the sequence, Stefan Frank would oversee that sequence and everything that we did within that. 
Uh, that only works if the entire movie is boarded and ready to be handed to the animation crew. And because of the schedule we were on and changes within the story that were happening, we never had enough um, material ready to be handed to us. So we were getting little bits here and there. And then they made a decision like, okay, well, you'll still have a supervising director that will have to prove everything and a character lead that will have to approve everything. But as we get stuff, if you're available, we're gonna have to hand you things. So that's why the crew kind of worked on different things. Like I worked on some stuff at the beginning, some stuff in the middle and some stuff in the end. It just kind of jumped around. But the initial hope was there would be a big chunk you'd be able to supervise the whole thing. Um, and the name Stefan Frank, right now you would know because he's doing all the what if stuff. He's the, the animation supervisor on Marvel's What If. And then the producer and director on What If is the guy that I work with on Samurai Jack and knew from CalArts, Brian Andrews. So there's a lot of kind of carry crossover into what, what you're seeing in today. But Iron Giant was hands down my favorite movie to work on and it was the last you know really good traditional movie oh and the other things that i think a lot of people hear about that's true brad fought tooth and nail with a lot <laughs> because they they wanted to make it a movie that was you know cut out of the mold that we had seen they wanted a love interest they wanted music and characters singing and all those stereotypes and all the cliches they, they kept pushing him and he was like no that's not the movie I want to make yeah. and that's the other reason we were behind Brad because we all felt the same way the entire crew was like Brad's right that's we've seen that before let's not make that again we just came off of a movie that had songs and it was a King Arthur story which had been told before we don't want to do that we don't want to do the cliche stuff we want to push the boundaries a little bit and <clears throat> because Quest didn't do as well. The Warner Brothers lot kept cutting Brad's budget. So yeah. Brad would have to figure out ways to cut his budget. And what people hear when they hear that, they think that, oh, that's awful. And that might be true, but what it forced Brad to be is more creative because he had to come up with creative solutions. And an example is right at the beginning of the movie, uh, the initial concept for the start of Iron Giant was the giant would land but instead of a little fishing boat, there was supposed to be a giant oil tanker. And yeah, the oil yeah. tanker was gonna have all, you know, hundreds of crew members on board running around as this huge ship. And they were gonna do it in CG, but that's a real added expense. And so Brad had to pare it down to just a fisherman on a boat by himself, which in the end was really good because that made that guy a character that we could follow and you know he could have little moments throughout the movie and, more and it made it more more intimate more personal yeah so there was lots of things that brad had to keep paring down um but the one thing that he never i think gave in on was the moments between hogarth and the giant all yeah. of those sequences um I, and again the the challenge with that movie is, is you have a, a vertical character and a horizontal medium. Brad did a lot of stuff in, you know, widescreen. And for Dean Wellens and, and Mark Andrews and Jeff Lynch and all the board team, coming up with ways to compose shots with that giant character and Hogarth, who's, you know, tiny. Yeah. 
Um, that was always the challenge, but they did it in such smart ways with camera angles or the giant in the, the lake and you just see his head um, or along the horizon. It, it was just, yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get that again. I, I hope someday. Um, I Brad, yeah, Brad went up to Pixar and, you know, their, their thing is the same philosophy he had, which is smart with heart. And so, yeah, go. They sit right next to each other. My favorite. Oh, picture, yeah. My favorite too, yeah. movie of all time. And then there's my little Iron Giant as well. They sit right next to each other. So uh, I think uh, if Brad would come back, I don't, when you say you don't think we'll ever get a movie like that again, are you talking about as far as heart and soul? Or are you talking like 2D animation style? Because I've had a few people on where they said everybody's really pushing that 3D. I think it was Craig. Uh, last or earlier this week, he said, you know, to to kids these days, that 3D is what is what kids want. I mean, the old school, traditional 2D animation style, it seems like 1920s compared to what these kids are really into. So what, what do you mean by, by that as far as like a movie like that? So I think a couple things. I think one, uh, yes, stylistically hand-drawn. I don't know if we're ever going to get back to hand-drawn. And, and there's there's a, a warmth. Um, there's a certain thing to a pencil on paper that even a, a stylus on a Cintiq can't reproduce, even with textures. Um, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's just a textile thing. And there's something magical that comes from that. Uh, I used to love to go to visit my friends like John Rippo who were working at Disney on paper and when he was doing um, Hunchback of Notre Dame and I'd see his, his animated drawings and I'd look and I'd go, oh, I can see where you erased and did your pose like several <laughs> times. I go, yeah, I go, I love that. Because he was searching. He was searching for a, a, a pose that gave him a mood or a feeling or something. And sometimes it's just a shift of a hand or a tilt of a head. Um, you can't see that now because you can just get rid of a layer digitally. Um, or you can shift a 3D model. The guy I mentioned earlier, Dan Wagner, who, I, who was just a phenomenal 2D animator, he transitioned to DreamWorks and DreamWorks um, he worked on uh, Prince of Egypt where they did 2D, but then he transitioned into 3D and he would have been the last person that I thought would make that transition easily. And he loved 3D. He loved being able to adjust the smallest little things in 3D. Um, he would break it down. And if you ever saw uh, Kung Fu Panda, he yes. was the lead animator on Kung Fu Panda. And he was, he's really that reason that that, that the panda Poe got was so loose and that's all Dan Wagner. He loved That's just all him. Um, he, he couldn't be stiff a day in his life with his animation, but all that fluid stuff, that's him, but it's because he really appreciated and spent the time learning the medium of 3d. No, what I'm talking about with, um, with iron giant is the, that feel of some 2d animation, but also that, intimate feeling between two characters. Yeah. I think producers are always trying to make things bigger and broader. I think Coco kind of came close. I think Jorge um, with Book of Life, he's come oh. close here and there. So um, you brought those up. I, I, so here, I think I said it in, in, in uh, Craig's episode, Book of Life, Coco. Nobody ever talks about Jorge in the book, the book of life in the last, I don't, I want to say at least, 
we'll go 10 years because I like even numbers. I like round numbers. Um, last 10 years, I have not been that emotionally attached to a movie or a TV show the way I was with the book of life. Like I saw the book of life halfway through, we were just flipping through and my kid was like, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. And he's like four maybe. Cause he saw something on the screen that wasn't, you know, news or sports or something like that. He saw something with colors. So I have been a huge fan. Like when it comes to food and we talked food earlier, it goes Southern food and then Mexican food. I love Mexican culture. I love everything about it. Mexican music. It just there's something about that culture that 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 I don't know what it is. It just it speaks to me. Right. And I flip through and it's and it's halfway through the movie and I was mesmerized. And this is going through a time where I didn't really watch too much cartoons. I was in the military at that time. I didn't really watch too many animated movies. Um, you know, it was just I was so busy. I was consistently deployed. I was consistently away from my family. So I was just watching anything that would make me laugh. Um, so I'd watch some of the, the shows that we've worked on. We talked about earlier. I'd watch some movies that I'd always uh, that I'd always have with me or I'd always seen. Um, so very rarely did I step out of my comfort zone and watch something new because I just never wanted to be disappointed, especially when you have very little time. You want to make sure even if it's the same movie or the same TV show, you're happy with it because you're, you've already got an emotional attachment to it. But the book of life, I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and, I, and I, I'm I'm just I don't know what it was, man, but my wife is nudging me and she's like, you okay? And I'm like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I'm not blinking half the time. I don't think I was breathing. I'm just sitting there just indulging in this, this beautiful movie, beautiful story. And then you get to the end. And like I said, there's been a few times over the last couple of years where I've actually cried at a movie. This one, did you ever see Into the Spider-Verse? Oh yeah. 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 So that scene where he's talking about, he doesn't know if, the, if he's ready for a mask and Stanley was like, Oh, you'll know when you know, this was right after Stan died. And right. I bawled my eyes out and my son's looking at me like, he's like, Oh man, this guy's crying again. It's something animated. Um, but, but those two movies specifically in the book of life. And I, like I said, I don't think it ever gets brought up enough. And I, I appreciate any time, and I don't mean to cut you off, but anytime oh. anybody brings up Jorge in the book of life, and especially when they bring up Coco too, I got to make sure that the bar was the book of life. Coco was a great movie. Don't get me wrong. There was nothing wrong about that movie. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed the book of life so much. It was such a beautiful movie. It was, it, like I said, it had that emotional attachment, Brandon. It had that emotional, that intimate connection that Coco, like you were saying, not specifically about Coco, but it, had, it appealed to a broader audience. I felt like the book of life, it was telling a love story, but it didn't, it, it wasn't saying, here's this here. When you have too many cooks in the kitchen, shit gets messy, right? This one seemed like there was one person, one story, and they let him tell his story and that's what I felt it just did it wasn't convoluted it was it was there and like I said every piece that movie is just so beautiful is what I'm getting at Randy so thank you for bringing that I, one I'm sure you'll have Jorge on at some point so I'm not going to tell all the Jorge stories but Jorge I met at Disney TV when he was starting on um, the buzz on Maggie which was a flash show one of their first flash shows mm -hmm. and I bumped into him and then I followed him a little bit and then he came to Nickelodeon and I was working there on something and he started doing El Tigre and Robert was visiting me one day, Robert Alvarez, and we went over to visit uh, Jorge and he was showing us stuff. He was so excited about it. And he was telling us all the stuff and um, uh, Dave, his uh, co-producer, director and Tim, his producer, 
they were all excited about it and they were trying to figure things out. But Jorge's, he's like most of us in this industry. He's just a fan too. You know, we're all just a bunch of nerds that like to draw. Um, but he, I, I watched him through that. Um, he went through his El Tigre phase, El Tigre phase. And I love hearing him talk about how he got Book of Life made and how he had to have Guillermo's Arturo's attached to it. And he tells, so I don't want to tell, but he has the best story of pitching it to Guillermo de Torre at his house. Um, uh, there's tequila involved, no spoilers. Um, but yes, Jorge is great and his passion is great. Um, I, he's, I love what he's doing now at Netflix. Yeah. I don't think he could do it any other place. So it's the perfect place for him. Uh, a lot of people like Craig are having the opportunity to create content that they can't produce any other place thanks to Netflix, so that's great. But uh, but when Maya and the three come out, I think you're, everybody's gonna be blown away by that again. It's another so, yeah, I thing, yeah. I, I love Jorge to death. Yeah, can't say enough good things about him. Uh, my friend Jeff Ranjo went over to work on Maya and the three as the head of story. So there's just, yeah, not a lot of great things. But but when, when it comes to the medium, Craig, Craig always seems to be a little ahead of the game too. Cause I remember when we were at Cartoon Network and he was just developing Fosters and Mike Moon, who was another friend of ours, showed him some samples of Flash. And everybody up until then thought Flash was very flat and very uninspiring and it couldn't look like 2D. But Mike Moon showed him a scene from Jungle Book that a studio had done in Flash. And it looked like it could have been done in 2D and that blew Craig away. But Craig was like, we have to do Fosters and Flash. Yeah. And it was, that was a big leap forward at the time in the medium. And then Harmony came and Disney was doing a bunch of stuff in Harmony and blowing everybody away. Um, and then Randy Cunningham, Ninth Grade Ninja came out and Tim Mouse was producing that for Disney XD. And that was like a hybrid where there was, it was Flash, but it was puppeted sometimes and hand on other times and that blew people away. So the medium keeps evolving and you kind of have to grow and evolve with it. The only thing that doesn't really change is character, story, those same beats, those same moments, but you know, whatever medium it does, it, what you do it in, um, that's kind of secondary. It still has to be a good idea. It has to have strong characters and strong uh, stories that the audience will care about, which by the way, just to throw it back at you, um, the reason I think myself and other people care so much about what you're doing is you're reaching out to fans. You're a fan yourself. Yeah. And here's the power uh, that people don't realize they have. Executives don't pick hits. Mm -hmm. They can't choose if something's going to be a success or not. The fans always choose that. The people out there watching the television, watching the computer, watching their phone or tablet, they choose whether it's a hit or not hands down, 100% without question. Um, their voices will always be heard louder than any single executive at any studio or network. So just know that you guys have the power. And really what we're doing is putting stuff out and hoping that people like it, yeah. um, that people respond to it, whether it's a, a kid, an adult, a young adult, whoever, um, that it reaches and connects with somebody. That's all we ever wanna do uh, in this medium. And we're, you know, we find that our stories tend to be relatable from time to time, whether it's through 
an action or a character moment or a character's point of view, whatever it might be. Um, so it's nice that you're putting voice to that uh, for yourself and for the people that follow you and listen to you and you know experience and share the same things that you do. So thank you for that. Oh man, like I said, this is my favorite. If 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 I could transition out of the kitchen into this and just do this for a living, like I've never had as much fun. Like I used to hate talking. Like I would say maybe 17 words all day. It was just something like, man, I just, I just want to be left alone up here. I just want to be, I want quiet essentially. And then I started, like I said, I started realizing like, man, I like all this stuff and there's other people that like all this stuff. And then there's people that created the stuff I like. I want to know their stories. That's, that's why I said, like, whenever I have somebody on, it's whatever we get to, we get to like, just talking to you, we could talk for six hours and not scratch the surface on your career. We could scratch or not, excuse me, we could talk for six hours and barely get to half of your career or quarter of your career. Cause like I said, you've done so much stuff just going over the little bit of a list I asked you about wasn't even half of what you've done, man. Um, and like I said, it, it's a lot of fun getting to do this because just like you like, you know, the director's cut or the behind the scenes thing. I like hearing that stuff too, because you don't get to hear that. You don't get to see that. You can't go and Google, Hey, what was it like on the iron giant set? You'd hear some stories that everybody knows about the iron giant, you know, Oh, Brad did this. He did this. She did that. He did this. You'll hear that type of stuff. But how you just got nerdy is what I like to hear. I like seeing like all the day-to-day -day stuff. We would, I didn't, I've never heard the whiteboard story. Right? I don't think I've ever went and seen anything about that on there. I was just like, wow. I just think, man, that's fantastic. That's a brilliant way to do it. Because you can sit there and communicate everything you need to like that. You don't have to sit here and beat around the bush. And you find out Brad's a very nice guy and he sits there and listens to everybody. That's if there was somebody that was sweeping the floors at Hanna-Barbera and he had some cool stories or she had some cool stories, I want to know their stories just as much as I want to know anybody else's stories, right? Because everybody's got a story to tell. That's what's so fun about talking. Um, but getting back to you, because um, like I said, some of the fans don't like when I go off on tangents and shit like that, but it, it is. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm, honestly, I, I just don't care because I have fun and I know other people are going to have fun you can't make everybody happy. You try to do the best you can with what you got. Um, but like I said, before we wrap up on Iron Giant, because I do, I do want to talk Samurai Jack and you have some stuff that we talked about and you showed me earlier that I, I really can't wait for the fans to see. And you just turned to the side and I, I that's a dope ass pillow you got behind you for the, uh, oh, cool. yeah. I just noticed that. <laughs> on the other side of the pillow, it's Jack. Yeah. That's so, awesome. so Jack on the backside. Yeah. Um, before we get off of the Iron Giant, like I said, actually, let me show you real quick. Okay. I don't ever, I don't ever wear, I got a couple Ninja Turtle tattoos, but, uh, there, that was my first tattoo ever, the Iron Giant. I, I don't think it was taken from any, from any scene. I think it was just a, a fan drew it and I was Googling some stuff when I wanted my first tattoo and I'm like, man, I really love the Iron Giant. What can I do? And I originally wanted uh, the one I showed you back there where he's got the S on his chest and he's, he's doing that Superman pose. Um, but I was like, no, I don't like Superman that much, even though if it's the Iron Giant. So I was, I was looking for something. I decided on that. One. But before we get off the Iron Giant, because like I said, it, yeah. it is a, a masterpiece. It's a beautiful movie. Um, what was your favorite scene to work on that you specifically worked on? And what was your favorite scene that somebody else worked on? When you watch this movie and you look back like, oh, man, this is my favorite scene in the entire movie. Do you have one or two of those? 
So um, let's see, my favorite scene. Well, I, I worked on some stuff at the railroad tracks when, um, the, you know, when the giant starts eating the railroad tracks and they see the train coming. I worked on some stuff in there that I liked a lot. But then the barn, uh, Ralph Fernan was an animator that I shared an office with and we did a bunch of scenes with the comic book sequence. Yeah. And I liked a lot of those that I did um, where he's like holding up, you know, like Superman and that kind of stuff, a little exchange. I really enjoyed those. Um, as far as... There's, there's the one scene where the giant's in the town in the third act and, he, you know, he's got his, Hogarth's got his finger and he's about to jump and take off. There's a little emotional beat between the two of them when they realize that that might be the last time they see each other. And it's just, you know, not even the full giant, it's just his hand um, and Ho the way Hogarth's holding it and lets go of it, it's kind of him letting go of it. The giant giving permission he understands yeah. uh but that's a, a real heart you know tug on the heartstrings moment that gets gets me every time yeah. um oh and so the, another sequence that i had a lot of fun that I, I got freedom to work on was the kent mansley um looking for clues uh stefan gave me a bunch of scenes in that where you know he's he's still feeling the effects of the x-lax but he's looking for clues at the with the farmer and wandering around the woods and still having issues, stomach issues. That sequence was fun because they gave me a lot of freedom with that. Um, so yeah, I like I like that stuff, and it's all pantomime. I didn't have to deal with any dialogue, so it was all just trying to make it work, just visual communication and acting. So that was kind of a fun challenge. So I liked doing that. Um, but the beyond that emotional beat at the end. I, I totally still just geek out over the third act. Mark Andrews just letting it all hang out with all the action stuff, the planes and watching the giant transform and all the cool gadgets and stuff that Mark Andrews came up with of how he can, you know, blast things, shoot things, energy beams, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I still get a big kick out of seeing that, that moment where he starts flying for the first time. Yeah. The, the third act is... Just a fun, a fun roller coaster ride to watch. I can't get her enough. So it really is. So uh, when this movie comes out, and this will be the last question. The only reason I, I asked this one is because I don't think I've ever had anybody uh, on here that's that's talked about a movie this big. Um, when this movie comes out, obviously you guys see it before you know it's released to the public and everything like that. I'm pretty sure they do watch parties, and so you get to see it uh, before anybody else does. But you specifically, do you ever go and watch, would you go and watch this in the theaters with regular people just to see how they're reacting? Or was this something you tried to steer away from? So there's, uh, there's a funny saying I have about, if you're, if you're fortunate enough to work in this industry long enough, there's two reactions you're gonna have when somebody asks you about a project you've worked on. You'll either say, I worked on that movie very enthusiastically, or you'll be like, yeah, I worked on that movie or that show. <laughs> Um, that's just kind of the reality to it. The Iron Giant, when we finished it, I saw it several times in the theater with, the, with a, uh, you know, I guess a general audience, a normal audience. And with kids, I'd go to matinees too to see if they react the same way. Yeah. The unfortunate thing about both Cats Don't Dance and Iron Giant is they fell, um, and it's just something that's out of your control because you can only do so much on any project. You can only control what, the stuff that you do. 
it's somebody else's job to help promote it and sell it to the public and tell them it's out there and all that other stuff. And both with Cats Don't Dance and Iron Giant, I don't feel like for whatever reason that the people whose job it is to promote that really knew what they had. Mm -hmm. And it kind of fell short in the promotional standpoint. So it's nice to see that both those projects, specifically Iron Giant, found a life after the theaters and found a following and people realized, and, and like you shared it with their kids and other, other family members, because it really is a very special movie that you can watch again and again. Um, it's not, you know, atypical, it's not cliche. It's, it's from the heart. It's from Brad Bird and, and everybody who worked on that movie knew what it was, enjoyed the process. Um, you know, gave their best work, you know, gave extra time because they knew what it was at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I did see it with uh, audiences and I've watched it several times, you know, at home when it's on cable or streaming services or something. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop and watch it from time to time and I'll remember, well, yeah, that was my scene or uh, Stefan did that one or, you know, I know, oh, Dean, like Dean Wellens, he did all a lot of the Dean McCoppin stuff, uh, the stuff he did with Dean at the at the, the drugstore um, when he was eating the ice cream and everything, I saw all that stuff. So uh, I shared an office with a couple of guys, one of which was Ralph Fernan, another one was Mike Chavez. And then right next to us, there was Dean Wellens, who was one of the guys we went to CalArts with, and him and Jennifer Carden Klein, who was really young at the time, um, they were doing amazing stuff. But Dean specifically, uh, Dean Wellens, his, his work is just crazy crazy good um and and he was part he became part of brad's kind of brain trust um dean so dean wallens um teddy newton and brad's assistant at the time shannon were the people who sung on the um, duck and cover song and they did it for the scratch and then kept it for the actual movie mm -hmm. so that's that little duck and cover thing, that's from people who worked on the movie. That's them singing um, on the soundtrack. But, and Teddy Newton's, we could spend five or six hours talking about Teddy Newton alone. Because yeah. Teddy's quite the character in our industry as well. He's got a, a bit of a, a fun reputation. But yeah, the whole crew that worked on that, um, the guys who painted backgrounds and designed backgrounds, color stylists, effects animators, just an amazingly talented group of people. Uh, and still to this day, when it comes to animated features, one of them, that, that group of people in that movie, I hold very dear and close to my heart. Yeah, and as you should, man. Like I said, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, go and watch The Iron Giant right now, please. Um, we'll yeah. finish this episode first and then go watch The Iron Giant. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing that I am just amazed, as well as The Iron Giant, was a very, very small show that only a few people ever heard of. And by a few people, I mean a few fucking million at this point. I mean, Samurai Jack. This show, like I told you before we hit record, and like I've said a couple different times, so I apologize, people. Um, I could not have appreciated this show at 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever it was. 11 is when it came out. Um, I was 11 when this came out. This show is so beautiful and i just recently rewatched it for the first time and i think i think it's been like 15 years at least 
Um, and my God, the Samurai Jack hold up. You guys did something that was, like I've said, it's just so timeless. I mean, it was so ahead of its time and it's so timeless. It, it's, it is just like the Iron Giant in a sense where it's a masterpiece. Um, when this comes around, obviously you went to CalArts like we, like we talked about at the beginning of this episode with Gendy, with Rob and you know a few other people. When this show starts coming around, obviously you were working on Dexter's Lab at that time first, right? You, you did some Dexter's Lab and Powerpuff Girls. I was on Powerpuff and yeah, that was at Cartoon Network. Um, so the, the strange timeline for all that stuff is when I was working at Turner Features, when Ted first bought Cartoon Network, um, Gindy had finished up, because he finished up the same time I did, he was attempting to stay here in the States and he applied to Batman and he was applying to Spumco and Warner Brothers and him and Robert Zetti and a small group of, of people decided that they wanted to go work at a studio in Spain called Blue Pencil. Because a friend of ours, Sergio Pablos, who did, who created and directed Klaus, it's on Netflix now. He was originally from Spain. Um, he invited them to come out. So they actually got to animate on Batman, the animated series, at a Spanish studio. So they did that for, I think it might have been a couple of years. Gendy and Rob come back. They actually stay with me for a few months, I think, while they settle back in. And the, I think the first job they landed was uh, Hanna-Barbera on Two Stupid Dogs. And it ended up being a, an amazing group of people. I think uh, Robert probably talked to you because he was there at the time as well. Um, and that's that was the beginning with Fred Seibert running things and Seth MacFarlane and uh, who else? Um, Pat Ventura. Um, yeah, Donovan Mark Cook Martin, that created it. Yeah. Donovan Cook. Was, all these guys, crazy talented guys were there. Um, Zach Moncrief, Miles Thompson, John Mack, so many names. So they, they did the Two Stupid Dogs pitch shows. Craig told you um, a lot of the stuff that happened with Powerpuff. Gindy did Dexter's as a short. They picked Dexter's up. But one key, <laughs> a couple of key crossover interviews that I want to interject at is Linda Zeminski and Craig McCracken. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for Linda Zeminski, there'd be no Powerpuff Girls. Yeah. Um, Craig talked about you know, people doing the focus grouping and then wanting to pass on it. He did two pilots. They passed on it both times. But really, Linda Zeminski is one of the unicorns in our industry because Linda Zeminski was willing to say to her bosses, there's something here. I believe in something. I trust my gut. Give me a chance to work with this guy. And thank God she did. Yes. Um, because if you think about it, if she hadn't done that at that time, we wouldn't have gotten Powerpuff, we wouldn't have gotten Fosters, we wouldn't have gotten Wander, we wouldn't have gotten Kid Cosmic, probably. But because she did that, she worked with Craig. They redid the Bible a little bit, and Craig touched upon it, which is really they defined the three main characters' personalities. Once they did that and took it back to the executive, they're like, oh, I get it. There's something for each of the audience members to identify with each one of these characters. Okay, we get it. And then Craig goes nuts. Um, but so just so your audience knows, Powerpuff was not like, nobody said this is going to be a hit. Yeah. Um, Linda trusted her gut on it. She knew Craig from way back when. Um, but he, I got to tell you this story. There's a Chris Buck who directed um, uh, 
um, Frozen, who's really smart. He was our second year animation teacher at Kellogg's. And Craig showed um, Chris Buck, who comes from the Disney traditional animation uh, kind of process. Craig showed Chris a test he had done with the Powerpuff Girls at Kellogg's, which as he said, were known as the Whoop-Ass Girls back then. And Chris couldn't give him any feedback. And Chris was very smart. He's like, I can't tell you anything about this because this is so different and the style is so unique. Anything that I would tell you would ruin what you have here. And that was the smartest thing Chris could tell him um, because Craig was, again, he's still to this day, completely rare because what he had was unique. Yeah. And something unique and different is really the rarest commodity in the entertainment industry today. Um, so Craig, you know, he had that idea in his back pocket when he had the opportunity, did two, two pilots, Linda fought for it. We, they got to do it. I didn't come on, here's your, here's your transition in my career. Our industry is all about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I finished up on Iron Giant around, I wanna say September in, 1999, I was rolling off of that. I was either gonna be trained to go into 3D in features or Gindy, I talked to Gindy, he said, do you wanna come and direct on Powerpuff Girls? So I, I said, yeah, that sounds like fun because I knew a lot of those guys too that were working on it. So I started on Powerpuff season two and um, I had a blast. I think uh, Eat Your Green, no, Beat Your Greens was the first episode I had and it took, Took some, it took a, there was a tree and I, and he would have to take me a sign go, yeah, you're doing stuff like features. You can't do that. He goes, here's how we do it here. And he would sit me down and he would give me my tutorial um, on Powerpuff and the timing style that he had established. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And then Robert, I got to know Robert uh, and Robert taught me a ton of stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get this. And I understand that. And we were still doing things kind of in an old school way where there was a, there was, this is pre-animatic time. So boards were done on paper. People would pin them up and pitch them. Um, somebody would slug the board. Somebody would track read the sheets and then hand them to somebody to transpose all the slugs onto the sheets. And then, you know, and Gendy would look at that, look all that stuff over. And then we would send it out along with the designs and everything. And we'd get back amazing episodes. Um, but some of it was out of our control because sometimes an amazing episode would go to a studio with a, a crew that either was less experienced or didn't have as much talent or time and the episode would come back and we'd be disappointed and Guinea and Craig would have to try to whip it into shape. But that's a, that was a constant with any, any production I've ever worked on. Once it leaves your hands, you never know who's gonna, who's gonna get it and who's gonna, what they're gonna do to it and you kind of cross your fingers sometimes. Um, but with, when we were on at Powerpuff on season two, Gindy was developing Samurai Jack. And a second ago, I said about said something about relationships. Gindy had developed a relationship with Mike Lazo, yes. who was the head of programming at the time. And they were very, very good friends. And Mike Lazo is an interesting character himself because he had this kind of all powerful position at Cartoon Network, but he hated being in public, have the spotlight turned on him. Anytime he had to speak in front of the entire studio, he hated it. But man, he was comfortable if you could just get him into your office or your cubicle 
and put him in a beanbag chair. He would just talk your ear off all day long about stuff. Um, and Gindy and him had a really strong relationship. So when Gindy had a project to pitch, he would say, hey, Mike, you know, I, I like working with Craig and this whole crew, but I really want to get back to my own thing. And he pitched him Samurai Jack. So unlike a lot of pitch Bibles, like here, I'll show you. Here's, um, here's a pitch Bible for my gym partner's a monkey. Okay. This is a pretty typical pitch Bible. And I'm just going to flip through it so you can see kind of the number of pages it has, all this breakdown stuff, color. So this is a pretty, pretty extensive, pretty thorough pitch Bible. And this was done by um, Julian Tim Cahill, which I ended up working with them on this show. But this is a pretty extensive pitch Bible. Here's something that people really haven't seen. This is the Sam original Samurai Jack pitch Bible. So this won't take long. So that's the cover page. Here's the first page with original Gendi drawings of a coup in Samurai Jack, explaining the origin and then the future, how that would play out when Jack gets tossed into the future. So that's that. So that's one page. The second page explains the adventure and has another Gendi drawing of Jack. So we're up to two whole pages. Here's the third page that says the action and the characters. And there's a picture of a coup that he drew. That's three pages. Page four has five story ideas on it. And you can see this one's very short. It's two sentences long. And then the last page is really just Gindy's philosophy on the show. Now I'm gonna read this to you because I've heard you guys talk about this and this kind of sums it up. And Gindy was really, he stuck to this. It says, Current television action adventure shows suffer from many things, bad timing, uninteresting design, insincere characters, and most important to me, bland emotion, emotionless expressions. This will be one of the key factors in Samurai Jack being different than any other show. The character design will hopefully make you feel every emotion and thought that the characters experience. So that was his goal, which he tried to achieve in every single episode. Mm -hmm. And that was, and at the time, yeah, the action stuff that was on didn't have this, wasn't this connection. Yeah. And that was going to go. So that's the whole pitch Bible. And the only reason I think Gindy had to put this together is because Mike Lazo said, yeah, we can do the show or we'll do the show, but I need something to take to my bosses and say, this is the show Gindy wants to make. So he put together that. All black and white, five pages long. You know, it's not even a lot of writing. And th then Samurai Jack is off. Um, he, then Gindy, once he got the green light, this is se the season one list of episodes. And we did outlines. And a lot of other people don't understand outlines. But on Samurai Jack, an outline would be maybe two pages. So this is uh, Samurai Jack outline episode 622-047, so episode 47. And it's two pages long. 
And what an outline is, is just a basic story structure and beats of what is going to happen in the episode. There's little to no dialogue in any of this. It's written by Amy Keating Rogers. She was our writer at the time. It has story by Brian Andrews, Todd Garfield, Brian Larson, Chris Riccardi, Amy Keating Rogers, Paul Ruges, Aaron Springer, Guinea Tartakovsky, and Eric Weiss. And the reason it's got so many people here is because the process on Samurai Jack is, let's get everybody into a room. Amy would sit in the corner with her laptop and everybody would start talking about ideas. And then from that brainstorm, it would start to congeal into a more solid idea for the episode. And Amy would take all of her notes down, go by herself, turn it into a story, put it in a uh, uh, first draft again. He goes, is this a story you want to tell? I go, yeah. So a lot of people contributed. Um, when it came to dialogue though, that was, up, if there was going to be any, that was either Gindy to, uh, working with the board artist or the board artist saying, here's a good spot for dialogue. But as you know, Craig and other people have told you, dialogue did not drive you know, the show. Um, it was about visuals. It was about visual storytelling. Um, it was about color, mood, emotions. It was about emotional journey. And the character did not have to always say, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. How else can you show that? Um, so, so here's the beauty of Samurai Jack. Samurai Jack was literally the planets aligning because the crew on that show was just mind-blowingly out of this world talented. You, you obviously know about Gendy. Scott Wills, who was the art director on that show, just crazy, crazy good. Um, Jenny Gates Baker, one of our background painters, crazy good. Uh, Dan Crawl, yes. Dan Crawl is just phenomenal. Um, he has a website. You guys can, your viewers can go and check him out. He's he's just amazing and such a nice guy. Andy Suriano, one of the character designers. Oh, here's something you'll appreciate. Nobody really hears this story. So Andy was transitioning from Nickelodeon. He was working with Butch Hartman over there. He was a fan of Gendy, wanted to work on the show. And everybody talks about animation tests. So we got a test. So Gendy would give character designers a test, but his test was a little different. Gendy's character design test for Samurai Jack was, hey, do you remember the cantina scene from Star Wars? Everybody go, yeah. He goes, okay, I want you to give me like five designs of characters from the cantina scene that would work in this show. It, that, that would be it. He would just let them go and have at it. They would doodle stuff down and he'd come back and he could tell from those drawings if they could work on his show, if they had his right sensibilities, if there was something there. Um, so he was very loose with that whole test idea. He just wanted to try people out a little bit. But um, Derek Bachman writing, Paul Rudish. Yes. Paul, so just let me just talk about Paul Rudish for a moment. So Paul Rudish is one of the most insanely talented MFs that I've ever come across. <laughs> um, Paul's, but he's just like naturally gifted. Uh, there's two kinds of people that I come across in the animation world. One is like a Paul Rudish or a Bob Scott. Um, and then others are like Gindy Tartakovsky or Bruce Smith. And it's no slight on them. It's just the difference is the guys who do things naturally are gifted. Or Sergio was like one of those guys too. I was always trying to learn. And when I'd go to those guys and go, hey, why'd you do that? Or how do you do that? 
those guys can't tell you how they do it. They, they just, it's so natural. They just, they just do it. But Gendy or Bruce Smith or a bunch of these guys, even uh, Brad Bird, if you ask them, why did you do that? Or how did you do that? They could verbalize it. They could tell you. And it's because they had to figure it out themselves. Yeah. They had to learn it and understand it. And by doing that, now they can communicate it, which is, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this guy, why Gindi is so amazing. Gindi can straddle the fence between the creative and artistic stuff in this industry and the corporate and production side. And he, he does a perfect balance to it. He appeases both groups. He understands both sides and the importance and the need for both. Um, and, and the people who are on the creative side, really just like the Brad Bird stuff, they just want to uh, make Gindy happy to contribute to the, to the show uh, and his vision of, of the show. So, um, you know, getting back, we had Brian Andrews, Brian Larson doing boards on Jack, um, Eric Weiss, Chris Mitchell, Aaron Springer, and Chris Riccardi. Oh my God, if, if anybody ever likes the goofier stuff on Samurai Jack, the farting dragon or the chicken Jack, that's 100% Chris Riccardi and Aaron Springer. And if you liked kick-ass action stuff, that's Brian Andrews, that's his brother, Mark Andrews, it's Eric Weiss, um, it's Brian Larson. They were always trying to push that stuff. And Eric Weiss was always good at the hybrid comedy and the action stuff. Um, then we'd have you know guys like Charlie Bean sometimes come in and do stuff. But here, I'm gonna tell you about this, another guy that, I don't know if his name has come up, I think it might have. So Chris Battle. Yes, I've, I've had one. So Chris Battle, crazy talented guy. I first met Chris on Powerpuff. Chris was a designer, him and Andy Bialk, who Andy Bialk and himself was an amazing designer. The art director at the time was this guy named Craig Kelman. And I would see Chris Battle's designs on paper go into to Craig Kelman's office. And I'd think, oh my God, those are, those are amazing. And then I'd see them come out with little post-its over the top of Chris's drawings. And I, and I would go, what, what is he gonna do? Those were great. There's nothing he could change. And then I'd look at the Craig Kelman um, little you know, notes and I go, oh my God, he made it better. He actually made it better. So Craig Kelman is this crazy, freakishly talented designer. And on Samurai Jack, <clears throat> Gindy very smartly surrounds himself with really talented people. He got Kelman to do designs freelance. And I kid you not, it's like, it was like Christmas when Craig would drop off a packet. And there was a particular time, and I remember Gindy would, he called me out and we went to the common area where the coffee makers and everything. And he opened up the manila folder and there's Craig Kelman's uh, blue line designs for an episode. And we're like flipping through them, just geeking out over Craig's designs. And Craig's designs are a masterclass in design theory. All the theories of just fundamental design were in each one of his poses, each one of his designs, you can hunt and peck. And, and because it was on paper, I could see where he erased and shifted and drew, <laughs> or he would add a poster. There was a dragon design he did, or um, a sea monster or something. And he did the design and he liked it and he had to do the tail. So he just taped on a piece of paper and folded it out and drew the tail so we continue on. Um, but Craig Kelman stuff just, constantly blew my mind on that show so 
You know, one of the sad things that I really enjoyed that I miss is going to the pitches because we would have crew pitches where it was a pinup pitch, giant conference room. I think on YouTube, there's some some videos of uh, Mark Andrews or somebody pitching a Samurai Jack board. Um, But the guys would get into it. They would, you know, take the poker and they'd put it up at their drawing. They'd pitch Jack doing the dialogue and they'd go to the next character. And you had a sense of it. A Brian Andrews pitch was always super fun because Brian Andrews would give you the reference. He was like, oh, yeah, then the boulder comes down like Indiana Jones. And then this comes out and it's all like Kira. And he would give you the his inspiration or reference to it. Um, and then Aaron Springer pitching the craziest, funniest stuff like the farting dragon stuff. Everybody was cracking up. So those were a blast. And now crew pitches are digital pitches with somebody sitting at a laptop or in front of a screen clicking through it. And even though they're doing the voices, it, it's missing sometimes that energy that we used to have. And that was always a lot of fun. And then the other thing that you can't really do with a digital pitch that I always marveled at was Gindy after the pitch with the little brain trust that he would have, he would stay there with yellow post-its and he would go and flag the scenes or the panels that he felt needed to be adjusted, excuse me, shifted, revised, whatever. He would write a note. He would do a drawing and there it was. So similar to Brad Bird on the whiteboard, when the storyboard artists would leave and pull down all of their, their panels, they had Gindy's notes on them. Yeah. So they knew what they needed to change. So that was a unique time for that stuff too. But um, going back to your, your point about Samurai Jack influencing you, I don't know if people realize it now, but Samurai Jack, it didn't hit where they wanted to hit uh, initially, meaning the network executives. And they moved it around a couple of times initially when it was on Cartoon Network. So the audience, when they did find it, had to refind it at a different time on a different day. So that was frustrating. But what they realized later that they were producing the show, hoping a younger audience would find it, but it was an older audience that appreciated it. And as the younger audience found it, then they appreciated it too. So it was just a strange time. And then it wasn't until I think season five, when Giddy got a chance to kind of wrap the story up, that every, everything kind of came together. He got to do it in a way where it could be on Adult Swim so he could have blood. Cause there was always an issue with S&P about if there's blood, if Jack gets cut, it's too red. You have to tone that down. And the only reason that Gindy had the character fight robots and spirits and monsters is because they were worried about kids seeing too much blood. Um, like the, one of the first episodes where he's fighting those big beetles. Yeah. The whole Jack soaked in black goo, the, the, yeah. the oil stuff, that was supposed to be like him covered in blood, but you can't show it. Um, but Guinea's influences, you know, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan or the Frank Miller 300 stuff. That's all in that, in, in the Samurai Jack stuff. Gindy was, he's a constant comic book fanatic. He's a constant film fanatic. Um, he's, he immerses himself in it just as much as anybody I've ever met. Yeah. Uh, but he's a student of it. Even to this day, he's, he still watches as much and tries to be as influenced as much as many things as he can, you know, time permitting. But uh, yeah, it was fun seeing him operate and his inspiration. And, and similar to Brad Bird getting an opportunity with Iron Giant, I saw Gindy, because of his relationships with uh, Mike Lazo and the executives of Cartoon Network, I think they gave him a little more leeway. Um, 
I remember him telling me a couple of stories like he pitched the outline for the blind archers and they were very forgiving because he said the outline he presented said Jack comes across a tower that's guarded by uh, Jack comes across a tower that has a portal that's guarded by three blind archers and Jack has to figure out a way to get past them to get to the portal and then I think at the end of it it says like 20 minutes of action and that's how he was going to fill 22 minutes it was like here's two two sentences of explanation but then if you trust me I'll give you 22 minutes of action and they kind of went okay go ahead we trust you um and they that trust is really rare you know to trust somebody with that nowadays it's like we got to look at the script we got to look at the animatic we want to make sure this the character and story and all of the elements are correct and we approve of them before you even move forward they put a lot of trust in gendy so so that was you know it was fun to watch that and i respect him a lot because he had really earned that and then he had to you know uh showed them the appreciation of the trust they were offering him yeah and and then that you know that worked into the clone war stuff that they got to do and the symbiotic titan that he got to do and everything else after that so um to some degree i have to admit i'm not that surprised by gindy's success um <laughs> i i saw him work and i saw some of the struggles both with executives artistic and creatively um with crew members, I saw a lot of that. But again, he has the passion for it. He knows the medium. He loves telling stories. He loves characters. So yeah, I'm, I'm not at all surprised about that. But here's a little inside tip. The reason that, I, and I tease him to this day, the reason that I think Gendy really hired me was because I introduced him to his wife. Oh, I'm um, so glad you brought this up because Robert told me to ask you two things. And that was one of that him, his wife and Craig's wife, how you got them to both connected. So uh, I mentioned relationships. Um, so this is where I think both <laughs> Gendy and Craig for some period of time, I, I like to tease them that that's the only reason they hired me is because I introduced them to their wives. And as long as their <laughs> marriages are good, I'll have work. Um, so back when I was at Turner Features and Gindy was at Hanna-Barbera, we were in two separate buildings that were separated by a parking lot. And every day, uh, a catering truck, hey, here's how food plays into it. A catering truck would come in and offer people, you know, lunch. And Gindy would go out there all the time and get his uh, breakfast burrito or whatever he was eating that day. But somebody who I was working with on the, the Turner Features side um, her name was Dawn, Dawn David. And Dawn, uh, her cousin was a producer on one of the movies I worked on, and she was a PA on the movie. So I struck up a friendship with her. She would go down because we would utilize, Turner Features would utilize the Hanna-Barbera facilities a lot of the time. So she would have to carry over material and carry it back. Sometimes she would go to the catering truck and Gindy would see her there. Um, and Gindy would ask me about her, you know, is she, who is she? Is she uh, single? And at the time, she wasn't single. So he was always very disappointed about that. But there was a time he wasn't single either, so it didn't matter. So there was a thing Gindy would have every year, which was he would have a Memorial Day barbecue, and everybody would come. And it just so happened that I reconnected with Dawn around that time. She just 
come back from a trip to, I don't know, Italy or Spain or someplace, and we were catching up. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to this barbecue. Do you want to come? It's Gendy. Do you remember him? He was doing this stuff with Dexter. And she's, oh, yeah, yeah I remember him. Um, yeah, I'd love to come. So I call Gendy just to make sure it's cool. And I say, Gendy, hey, do you remember Dawn? She used to work with me at uh, Turner Features. And I goes, yeah, I go, I was just chatting with her. I invited her to a barbecue. I want to make sure it's okay. And Gindy's voice, you know, he, his voice went up and he was like, hey, yeah, yeah, come on over. Yeah, that'd be great. So I bring Don over and I don't think they left each other's side that entire time. And they told me later on, I came to, towards the end of the party, I was looking for Don because I was going to take her home. And I bumped into them someplace in Gindy's house. And it turns out there, there was about to be a moment and I, that I interrupted. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. I just thought I was, you know, being polite and finding Dawn to make sure she got home okay. I dropped Dawn off. She bends down. After she steps out of the car and she says, you could give Gendy my number, which I did. And then that's when that whole relationship started. Three kids later, a bunch of Emmys, um, Annie's, all this stuff, productions later, they're still happily married. So that's the Gendy story. The Craig story is during season two, when I was on Powerpuff, I mentioned I had just finished up on Iron Giant. And one of the other animators on it was Lauren Faust. Lauren also came on to Turner on Cats Don't Dance and transition on Iron Giant as well. Um, she was taking some time off, but again, I had reached out to her, just checking on her, how things were going. She had was in a relationship at the time, but she was kind of bored with work. And I said, well, do you wanna come over and check out Powerpuff Girls and see what we're doing? Come over, just come over for lunch, which she did. She came, came over, hung out at the studio for a little bit. We were in Sherman Oaks at the time. Um, she visited, had lunch, came back to the studio for a little bit. And the way the studio at the time was set up was anybody who was coming or going into the Powerpuff production area had to pass uh, Craig McCracken's office and Craig had these big windows so we could see everybody. So I walk uh, Lauren out, said goodbye. As I'm walking back, Craig rushes out of his office, grabs me and goes, who's that? And I said, well, that's my friend Lauren. She worked with me on Iron Giant and everything. He's, what, what's the deal with Lauren? He had to know everything at that time. And is she coming back? Does she want to do, does she do boards? What does she do? So you know, I, I could see that he was interested, but I told him she's seen somebody. Um, but he's, then he was like, well, what about, does she want to take a test? And I said, I don't know, I'll ask her. So I called her up and I said, Lauren, do you want to, just for fun, you know, nothing, nothing big, no big deal. Do you want to take a board test and see, you can fill some of your time, there's no rush. So she was all for that. She did the test, handed in, Craig liked it. Craig offered her some freelance, but anytime she came to the studio and visited me, the only time Craig McCracken ever showed up in my office was when Lauren Faust was visiting me in my office. Um, other than that, Craig never came into my office. Um, and he acted very nonchalant about it, but I, I realized that I noticed it. <clears throat> but it, they became a couple, Lauren eventually, ended a relationship, became available. Craig asked her out and, um, you know, they got married. They have a child now. Um, 
Lauren, you know, and there's an interesting story there that not, people, not a lot of people know about. Lauren became very well known for My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. And here's how relationships work. Craig was represented by an agent named John, John Goldstein. And John Goldstein was very well known within the animation community. <clears throat> and a representative from Hasbro approached John and said, hey, we're thinking about reviving the My Little Pony franchise. Do you know anybody that would be really good with, about running the show? And because John repped Craig, I knew about Craig's relationship with Lauren, I knew about Lauren's obsession with My Little Pony because she had every My Little Pony. He said, yeah, I know somebody. And he put Lauren in touch with Hasbro and she developed My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. So there's a weird kind of you know, domino effect that happened there. And then Lauren's got on to all, all of her amazing success as well. So again, I just kind of tease everybody, those two guys specifically, that if, uh, you know, if you're going to keep me working, it's because I introduce you to your wives. And I tell young people, hey, if you want to meet somebody, make sure you hire me. And I learned this from Robert, by the way, because Robert always tells everybody, hey, go and get your own show, but make sure you hire me. So now I tell them, hey, if you're single and you want to find your soulmate, make sure you hire me and I'll introduce you. Here's my track record. So that, those are the Craig and Gendy relationship stories. The other one that he wanted me to bring up, because I always reach out to uh, some of the guests and I'm glad you brought up Chris Battle because he does. I, I had a, I had a chance to sit down and talk with him. And uh, I'll after we get off here, I'll tell you the project I'm working on that I've kept pretty secret. Um, but, uh, Chris was a great guy. And the other one he wanted me to add, or Robert wanted me to ask you was, how'd you get the nickname ro ro Randy? Oh, it's Rara. Rara uh, Randy. Rara Randy is because of him. Robert used to say that all the time. And now it's my nickname and my email. Um, it's just how uh, Robert's a funny character. He would, um, he, when I would come into a room or he'd call me on the phone or anything, he'd always, first thing he'd say is Rara Randy. Um, so it's a, it's a Robert Alvarez. And then I started kicking it back to him going, rah, rah, Robert. Because um, Robert and I on Foster's shared an office. <laughs> so I know a lot of, maybe I know way too much about Robert, his work habits, his idiosyncrasies and um, peccadillos about things he likes and dislikes and people he likes and dislikes. But I learned a lot about Robert. Um, I learned about his fascination with Lancelot Link um, and how he's a big fan of uh, anything that has a monkey or a chimp that cracks Robert up. Um, I got to learn about Robert's animation collection. I got to learn that he, he owns a DeLorean, which cracked me up. Um, but Robert's an interesting cat and, you know, his whole career and all of his stories. And he's, he's still, still going, influencing. I mean, there's almost what people don't realize if if you had a pilot for several years, and it's still kind of going on, for several years at Cartoon Network, if you had a pilot, Robert would work on it. Yes. Victor Valentino, Infinity Train, Summer Camp Island. I mean, um, it goes up, we, we Bear Bears, just about every pilot that went through there, um, Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack, I think. Um, Robert probably worked on your pilot. Yeah. And, you, and there's, a, there's even more that never got picked up. Robert worked on those pilots. Uh, so Robert's still working with and influencing the next generation of filmmakers. But yeah, Robert's Robert's so much fun and he's got so much stories. And I, maybe I get this kind of 
diarrhea of the mouth when it comes to animation from Robert. Too, <laughs> he loves talking about it as well. But you get us in the room and we'll just, it'll be never ending. He'll, he'll, he'll probably outdo me because he's got more stories with me that go back 50 years. Mine only go, go back about 30 years, but um, yeah. So Chris, Chris is great. Chris has got great stories. Chris has also got a great heart too, because I remember a good friend of mine asked me one time, because they know I know a lot of people in animation. They had a, a friend who was a huge fan of Teen Titans Go. And I knew that kid, uh, I knew that Chris worked on the show. And I said, hey, Chris, a friend of a friend has a son who's a huge fan. Would you do a drawing? And Chris was like, no problem. And within like a couple of weeks, he emailed it to me. I emailed it to this guy. And this kid went nuts. It's amazing how much joy a drawing can bring to somebody. And he'll have it forever. Yes. Um, and hopefully... He'll, make, he'll remember that feeling and that connection and that, uh, you know, that emotional attachment he had to that show and those characters. And that's what, that's what we do. We hopefully create emotional attachments that are positive to everybody. Because I had those growing up with the shows that I watched, both live action, animated movies, all that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's a really positive influence on my life. So I hope other people also have a, that same positive effect. I got to imagine they do, man. And that's, I don't like using this term because I told you there's two things I never bring up, never bring up religion and I never bring up politics, but I'm going to use this terminology. And like I said, I'm not a religious guy by any stretch of the imagination, but you're doing the Lord's work, man. That's a very kind thing for you to do. That little boy is going to remember that for the rest of his life. It doesn't matter. Chris might forget that, right? Chris or anybody else that you might have asked to do something like that. They might forget that. But that one little boy, that one little girl, that one person that was having the worst day of their life, they got to see a character or a scene or something like that that was specifically for them. And like I said, that'll forever just be ingrained and etched into their memory. Um, as we start to wind down here, um, and I got to say, we haven't even scratched the surface of, of anything that you've, you've worked on, man. I mean, like I said, we could talk for six hours and not even break the surface, right? We, 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 we haven't even made it to the first chapter, ladies and well, gentlemen. That's, well, that's not your fault. It's because I end up talking way too much about all this stuff. Not at all, man. I enjoyed every little bit of this. I, like I said, I love seeing the director's cut, man. Um, and that wasn't a slight saying we haven't even scratched the surface. Cause like I said, you have worked on so much stuff. Um, but there's a couple things that I did want to circle back towards at the end. And if you're up for it, um, this one will probably come out. I want to say, I know we're like three or four weeks behind as far as record and release. Um, so I think this one will come out at the end. What month are we in? We're in September. It's September 8th. Uh, so I think this one will come out the third week of October. However, I can hold on to this for a little bit longer if you want to do a two-parter and then I'll just have my tech guy, Larry, he'll edit them together and we'll just put out one super long episode if you're up for it. Um, That's, I, I, like I said, Julian, here's the thing. My wife will tease me to no end. I won't talk about many things, but on the times that I've been in front of her and somebody's asked me about animation, she starts cracking up and making fun of me because it's the one thing I'll just talk on and on and on and on about. So, yeah, but here's the, here, I, I just want to make this little um, caveat to the whole thing. You're talking about my career. My career, by the way, 
doesn't exist without all the people that I work with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the successful shows I've worked on, they're not because I worked on them, they're because I got an opportunity to work with some amazing people and enough, enough people out there saw it and liked it and wanted to see more. So I'm really fortunate in my career to have had the opportunity to work with some crazy talented people. So uh, as much as I'm gonna talk about me, I'm gonna name drop, drop the heck out of a bunch of people who I who inspire me and motivate me to be better in this medium, um, whether it's artistically or on an executive side, because uh, I try to observe all of it and take it all in like a sponge. Um, so I'm happy to talk as little or as long as you want, but I warned you ahead of time, this is the one subject I go on and on about. No, it's, it's perfectly fine, man. Like I said, I really enjoy it because that's one thing I absolutely loved about talking with Robert is every time I would bring up something, you would see his eyes light up and then you would go straight into a story. And I love seeing that. Like, I like, like all I'm really missing is an ice, an ice cold Coke and a bottle of popcorn. And I just want to sit and listen. I don't even want to say anything. I just want to sit here. I've got my legs folded up in my lazy boy chair and I'm just having a good time, man. So that, that's what I like about these talks, because like I said, you get to see and you get to hear shit that you don't get to hear. Uh, you don't see them on YouTube. You don't see them in the director's cut. Cause there's so many of those director cut uh, for, 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 you know, shows that, that you watch or movies that you watch, you don't get to see much, right. For a director's cut, you don't get to see everything because you can't put two years worth of stuff in an, in an eight, 10, 12, 14 hour show, whatever it is, you know, you just can't physically do that. So getting to see this stuff and getting to hear this stuff and then getting to like, oh man, that's what they were doing. Randy not only was working on these shows, but he was also Randy the Matchmaker Myers. That's what Randy, man, that's that's the type of stuff we want to hear. Um, so like I said, I love this type, this type of conversation, this type of chat, man. I don't like to say, like I said, I don't like to keep it yes and no questions because that's just boring as hell. Nobody has fun with that. You can find that on any single YouTube interview with anybody out there. It's just not something I like to do. So I like, like I said, I like this type of stuff. Um, so I'm going to save the fans questions for our part two. So that way we don't have to cut that out and put it on the second video. We can just smush this one together. So ladies okay. and gentlemen, since you made it this far, we're going to be wearing different clothes the next time we talk. Um, but before we, before, before I let you get out of here, there was a couple things on Samurai Jack specifically that I wanted to ask you about. Um, now I see some of your Emmys back there, right? I mean, oh, yeah. My eyesight starting to go. Um, congratulations, by the way, every single one of them well-earned. Um, one specifically, uh, or a couple episodes specifically, and I'm not hundred percent sure. I know the, the birth of evil, um, those part one and part two you worked on. I believe that's where, did you get your first Emmy off of that one? Yep. Okay. Beautiful. There was two more episodes. There was the one with the Shaolin monks. And then there oh, was, yeah. there was another one, um, with, I think it was the episode before the birth of evil part one, part two, where Jack is in the haunted house. Did you work on that one? I didn't work on haunted house. No. No, but you, are you familiar with that episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You brought up something earlier, and I, I want to circle back to, uh, it was talking about, you know, not having a lot of dialogue in there, being very, very visual with the storytelling. With an episode like the, the Haunted House one, we, we talked about how a pitch, you know, goes through with Gendy and the crew and everybody, you know, putting a little input here and there. Was something specifically like that, and we saw how small the pitch Bible was, and we saw how small 
almost two sentences for one episode was was the entire uh you know i want to say overlap or overview of an episode but with an episode like that does an idea just come jack goes to a haunted house or what is the late layout for pacing leading up to episodes like that because obviously you've got you know your peaks and your valleys and your crescendos and you got to bring them back down to build them back up and you're really just playing with people's emotions but with specifically with that episode because it's it's I don't want to say it was out of left field, but you're, you're sitting there like, man, you, we went from this to this, and then you get the birth of evil. But that episode was so intense just sitting there because I don't like ghosts. I don't like anything that's spooky. I don't like horror movies. I am a very big baby when it comes to that type of stuff. So when I'm watching this, like I had to turn on my lights because usually the, the routine, because we have a two month old now and, uh, you know, uh, we would go upstairs around eight o'clock and then we would, uh, wife would feed the baby, we'd change the baby, we'd give him a bath. And then one of us would get in the shower while the other one was watching the baby. And then when one got out, the other one went back in. So it's, it's like that. So my time with my son for the first couple weeks when we got home was I would watch an episode or two of Samurai Jacks. So my wife could go shower and she could relax and decompress. I had the baby, we were sitting there bonding. Um, he would fall asleep almost instantly because that's what newborns do. And I would just watch Samurai Jack. But I remember watching this episode and I would usually watch it with the lights off so the baby wasn't awake. I had to turn the lights on for this episode. I felt so like I felt like I was there with Jack. What goes into that process, like trying to bring the emotion up for Jack, but also trying to get somebody else to feel that? Does that question make any sense whatsoever? I'm sorry if it doesn't. Well, it, it makes sense, but the the best person to answer that would be Andy, yeah. because um, most of the so we would still do a brainstorming session for Samurai Jack, but it there's times when Gendy would come in and say, "I have an idea for an episode," or "I saw something," and he would want to do something similar. I mean, um, so and and the other thing too that may or may not be obvious to everybody is Gendy's intent wasn't ever to have every single episode be paced the same, uh, be predictable, be the same kind of show, which is why we have farting dragons and chicken jack and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, he would do the Scotsman type stuff that had action and slapstick. He would do um, straight, straight action stuff like the ones with the bounty hunters and he would do comedy stuff. So he was always intentionally trying to mix it up. And then yes, he did, he did a horror one and he also did one that was kind of an Egyptian based or Pharaohs or something because yeah. he wanted to explore that. He even did a gangster one that yeah. was kind of a take on uh, Goodfellas and, and those type of movie gangster movies. Yeah. So he was, you know, Gendy loves Scarface and Godfather and things like that. So he would take his influences and go, how can I do that in an episode? How can I make that work within an episode? So you know, I don't know the complete, to be honest, I don't know the answer to that, but, but I would say it's probably came about because Gendy saw something or was influenced by something. He said, I want to try to do that, which is him challenging himself. And then by him challenging himself, he's challenging the crew. Can we do this? Let's do this. And, and really, you know, the show succeeds because of Gendy's vision and Gendy's point of view. Um, at any point, if you didn't know what you should do, you could go to Gendy, he would give you direction. And that's not always the case in our industry today to have somebody at the helm who could give you 
um, clear direction, a clear idea, a clear understanding. So you go back to your desk and go, I know what I need to do. So the, that particular episode probably in, impacted you because Gindi had a, a very clear idea about the story, the lighting, the execution, the pacing, the mood. Gindi's a big mood guy. I think Craig told you about music and beats. Yes. Gindi's um, a huge music fan and things happen in beats. Um, so, you know, building that, we, we all know the cliche horror stuff, you know, the red herrings and things, those are in there too. Um, but Gindi would kind of put his twist on it, his turn on it to make it different enough that maybe you can't anticipate what's going to happen next or what's gonna jump out or what flashes are gonna happen. Um, and Gindi was always trying to mix mediums of things, mix influences of stuff and combine them in an episode, which you end up with either, it's, it's kind of like ingredients when you're making, a, making food, making a dish. You hope it's gonna turn out well, you think you've seasoned it well and added the right seasoning, but until you taste it and had somebody else confirm it by tasting it, you're not 100% sure. Um, so yeah, and, and ironically enough, I'm talking in, in food analogies, Gindy's also a big foodie too. He loves food. He grew up in Chicago, loves food, move out here, loves food out here. Um, so I think along with the music um, and the appreciation of, of uh, you know, filmmaking, I think he also might think of it as food. Him and I, we were big fans of Iron Chef when Iron Chef first hit. And that was our distraction. We'd watch Iron Chef and, oh, it's like a sporting event, the way it's presented. It's so cool and you see what they do and it's, it's got so much energy. So I think Gindy also influenced, you know, it was also influenced a lot about by, by food and chefs and how that stuff, um, how, how he appreciated what they did too. So that's all those different influences. And, you know, Robert talked about Gindy's influence in uh, coming from Russia as well. So, you know, Gindy's work is heavily influenced by a bunch of things. I mean, I... I became a bigger fan. I knew about Tex Avery, but I became an even bigger fan of Tex Avery because Gendy was such a huge fan. Um, and the drawings in the cells behind me yeah, are from yeah. Tex Avery cartoons. So, um, and Gendy and I would talk about, oh, how much we loved um, uh, Ralph Bakshi's uh, um, uh, Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse New Adventures and stuff like that. Oh, it was so cool. And did you see this drawing? And, you know, we would, I just loved Guinea's energy about it too. But yeah, I, res, I respected it so much. And I still to this day, and I, I, I love to tease him. A little inside joke we have, <clears throat> um, and he, he hates this, but on Dexter's Lab, uh, the opening of Dexter's Lab, one of the first episodes, Dee Dee um, knocks on the door and then Dexter opens the door, then the door closes and then the door opens again and Dee Dee's standing there in her ballerina pose. And I was like, Gindy, why did you have him open the door twice? Why didn't he just open the door once? And there's, there's Dee Dee standing there. And he's like, no, no, I wanted to say, no, no, it would have been better if you just done it once because you can't ruin the, the reveal because you know she's there. And he's like, no, no, no. So we go back and forth. And I do it just because I like, you know, poking him with, with a stick once in a while um, because he's right. It's better the way he did it, but I just like to have something to poke at him with. There's not a lot that you can poke Gandhi about, but, um, but I, you know, just because I know him and I can, I do it. But yeah. um, 
I mean, I, I, I like that people like the show because I liked it. Um, a, a little known fact about both Powerpuff and Samurai Jack that we appreciate but hurt us initially, just, you know, you guys know. Because Powerpuff wasn't seen as a hit, they didn't merchandise it. Yeah. Um, not a lot of people know that the very first merchandising for Powerpuff Girls appeared in an Avon catalog, and it was for three plush toys. Um, it wasn't until later on that they went, hey, maybe we should make some toys. So they dabbled and they did some things, and then they weren't sure where to put it in the stores, in the brick and mortar stores. This is pre-Amazon days. So Toys R Us and KB Toys were like, does it go in the action aisle with all the action toys or is it a doll? So they they put it in the girls section and then it sold like hotcakes and they did a bunch of other stuff. And not a lot of people know this, Julian, but there was a whole monster and villains toy line that was slated and they had done commercials and built prototypes. I wish you would ask Craig about this because <clears throat> it broke our heart. They came to the studio with the stuff. We're like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But when they took it to the retailers and said, hey, we want to do this, the retailer said, no, 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 we, we can't do that. That'll confuse the public. They have to have one place that they can go to to find all these toys. Um, so they put the kibosh on the boys line of, and, and Craig came up with this idea for the monsters that they could mix and match arms and legs and there would be, they were at bigger proportions. And he did, um, and Paul Rudis did these amazing drawings because Paul Rudis had a background in toy design for all the villains to have their own separate toy line. And even though they did some mojo, you can't find him. They did a few small fuzzy lumpkins things, but really the, the villains, which were awesome, really didn't get much of a toy line. And the monsters that always would come and destroy Townsville, they didn't have much of a, a, of a presence. So that broke our hearts. And then uh, Samurai Jack also similarly a few things came out and we bought up all, all kinds of stuff. I have maquettes and toys and we got the early toy lines and they brought, they did cells and I bought those and I was smart enough to have one of my posters signed by the entire crew. Um, so I have that, but there wasn't a lot of stuff on Samurai Jack either. And that kind of broke our hearts. And then it came and went because they felt like it didn't find an audience and they did a second wave, which was pared down. But it's unfortunate because I, we're fans of this show. Um, the whole Critchelites episode of Samurai Jack is based on Chris Mitchell, who's one of our storyboard artists. It was named after him and designed to look similar to him. And it's a lot of the conversations are real conversations or similar conversations that Chris would have with friends of ours like Charlie Bean. And they would talk about action figures and collectibles and stuff. So in the episode, when they're talking about it, that's ripped right from conversations that somebody overheard at the studio um but we collect this stuff we love this stuff too especially for things that we worked on we wanted to go out and buy it ourselves and we're really frustrated i had to travel miles to get iron giant toys because you know trendmaster didn't produce a lot of those whenever, um whenever I, see it, uh, I whenever i see it pop up i pick them up i mean i saw that one at walmart yeah. The big one sent it back there so it, it sucks because this is i didn't realize that um samurai jack especially powerpuff girls craig actually sent me some artwork of some of the stuff you were talking about with yep. I, I think i got some of the villains in there he definitely sent me some stuff for powerpuff girls and i think fosters as well i can't remember because the email was a couple weeks ago 
Um, but yeah, it, it, it's wild to think that, I mean, I guess it's just cause I, I don't know. I mean, I would have loved Samurai Jack toys. I would have loved Powerpuff Girl toys, even though I said it in the Craig McCracken episode, I got beaten up a couple times for liking Powerpuff Girls until my friends went and watched Powerpuff Girls. I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is actually really cool. You were, you were actually telling the truth here. You weren't lying. Powerpuff Girls were cool. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it, it really is a shame. And I, I, I do know, I don't know if you can see them in the back, but the uh, Funko Pops, do you know anything about them? So yeah. Samurai Jack is actually getting a second wave uh, of Funko Pops that are hitting in October. So I don't know if you know that, but just to give you a heads up, there's five of them um, from season five, five or six. I know there's a chase with Jack without his helmet or with his helmet. I can't remember which one. So keep your eye out for those if you if you didn't know about those. Well, the Funko Pops are an easier sell to the public. Um, this was one of the things that Gendy had to, had to deal with. Jack has this little thing he carries around called a sword. And, you know, parents buying action figures with swords in them or sharp objects was always an issue. Mm -hmm. So that was always a tough thing. That's why some of the other action figures didn't have a sword. It would have some other like nunchucks or something else with him. Um, but that was always a, a tough sell. And, you know, they were just meant for a different audience. They, were, they weren't marketed correctly. And when Mondo does stuff, they reach a certain correct audience, but that's, that's still a niche audience. Uh, but us being the geeks in-house working on it, here's something that the viewers should appreciate. So your office and kind of my office is how most of the offices work, uh, look like inside an animation studio. It looks like a kid from nine to 14 lives in that space. It's covered with, you know, cartoon drawings and cells and artwork. And then it's a ton of toys. Um, it, that's what everybody's cube and office looks like. That's one, another reason it's an awesome place to work. Yes. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we all miss it so much is we don't get to go around and see everybody's collections and, you know, say, hey, look what I got. And at the time I was buying stuff, I used to have to go to um, the Warner Brothers store when they had stores and malls and they had like my uh, Superman and Batman maquettes. I'd go in there and buy stuff from them um, or sometimes they'd have cells. And I always liked listening to the salesperson because they didn't know what a cell really was. Um, because they would, they would try to convince you that the limited edition cells they had were production cells. And I go, really? Because I don't think that's a real production cell, which means it was in the episode. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, I won't argue with you. Um, but yeah, I used to buy a bunch of Powerpuff. They had a bunch of Powerpuff clothing at the Warner Brothers stores. So that was cool. But then those went away. So I kind of missed the brick and mortar stuff when you could go and see them on a shelf. Um, it's, it's nice that it's delivered to you in two days, but I, I mean, I don't know if you, if your kid ever had that experience going to a Toys R Us and it's just like Wonderland. Uh, they, so Toys R Us went out of, uh, went out of Vogue, I guess, or they, they hit the bankrupt a few years ago. So he went one time and Toys R Us was never really big for me because anytime we went, my mom was a single mom, uh, worked two jobs. So and there was five of us at the time, I believe. I can't remember. It was either six of us or he was grown and gone or there was five of us. But my sister was getting ready to leave because she was 18. So at, at one point in time, there was at least five of us and, you know, under one house or under one roof, excuse me. 
Um, so the one time we went to uh, Toys R Us, I bought every single Ninja Turtle toy that I could possibly buy. Because like I said, I'm just a huge Ninja Turtle fan. Um, and that was what was real popular back then. Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, Batman, of course. Um, I don't know if you can see it, uh, but the Batmobile back there from the animated yep. series right next to his favorite Batmobile of all time. But it, it, it's, he definitely went into, my oldest son, he went into a Toys R Us and he was just completely blown away. He's like looking around. He was like, what is this place? And I was like, well, this is a toy store. And he was like, I get that, but there is toys from stuff I've never seen, I've never heard of. And I'm like, yeah, that's a toy store. There's something in here for everybody. Go find something that's going to make you happy. Um, and I think at that point in time, he was in a dinosaur train because he was probably four or five, somewhere around there. Um, so he was really big into uh, Craig Bartlett's dinosaur train on PBS. Yep. So we bought him the little, uh, you could sit them next to each other and they talked to each other. Yep. And they would walk and they would talk and all that other crazy shit. So yeah, he definitely got to see Toys R Us, but it was definitely Toys R Us limping in at the last second. It was Toys R Us that needed, you know, a fresh coat of paint. Um, so he didn't get to see that or KB Toys at the height of it like I did. Um, but yeah, it, it's something that I, I really wish and I really hope that because they brought back Powerpuff Girls and they brought back Samurai Jack. It was just something that I, I would have assumed that they would have brought merchandise back for. Now you can get some stuff, but I've tried buying some cells and some storyboard stuff that they have online that they bought from the Warner Brothers, the people have bought from the Warner Brothers store. So it's got the COA and everything on there. I don't know if you've seen what some of these things are going for these days, Randy, but it is expensive to be a fan of this shit. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. Um, well, you know, on that, on that, I'll tell you a quick story about Craig when, so his, he had his deal with Cartoon Network. And he was supposed to get a percentage of the licensing uh, when they would when Cartoon would license the likeness of the characters out. He would he would benefit from that deal if they make toys or use it on merchandise. It was a small percentage. Um, but his agent, who I mentioned earlier, John Goldsmith, John part of his job is to um, audit the network and make sure the numbers are correct. And he found that Craig was owed some money. Mm-hmm. And it was not a small amount. It was a very large amount. And I think that was the first time when I realized, I guess he's selling a lot of Powerpuff toys. And sure enough, yeah. But, but here's something fun about Craig. This will tell you something about Craig. Yes, Craig liked that and he benefited financially. But Craig told us one time, and we had a display at the studio, His um, to him, you weren't really a success until people were bootlegging your toys. And, <laughs> He loved going down to Tijuana at the border and seeing all the bootleg Powerpuff stuff that they were selling. He, he would buy it. He wouldn't report anything. He bought it. He'd bring it back to the studio and go, look, look at the pinata. Look at the, the uh, cookie jar and all the stuff that I bought. And it's, it looks awful. Or the plush toys that are awful. And he loved it. He loved that stuff. Um, and it used to crack us up. But yeah, the, the merchandising, uh, that's unfortunately at any studio that's a whole nother group they do that they have to plan ahead and nowadays it's even harder because of streaming and the limited runs on stuff i mean have you ever seen i worked on um gravity falls have you seen a lot of gravity falls toys and that's disney they're a big machine when it comes to that stuff so the the craig stuff the wander over yonder over there um yeah it's it's few and far between and 
it's a shame that it's you know not happening more because I would buy a lot of that stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but they have to pick and choose, I guess, and they have to plan ahead yeah. um, about all that stuff. Uh, and a lot of people still don't understand or appreciate the length of time it takes to produce animation and how much lead time you have to have for that. And then by the time it's out, you know, everybody's gone. The crew's, you know, gone and they've, they're, they're to the wind, so you can't find anybody. So that's tough. And you don't know if it's going to be a hit. You can't keep them on. You have to restaff again if, if it is a hit or if it's, it has some success. So it's it's a weird kind of process and pipeline, but when done right, and if the planets line, oh, by the way, that was the other benefit to Samurai Jack. Gendy, because again, because of his relationship with Mike Lazo, we would get a green light for our next season before we would finish the season we're working on. So yeah. that way everybody knew hey, we can start writing, we can start production. You don't have to go looking for another job. You'll come back and work on the next season here. So they would get their return dates. They'd know what they were doing. They could take a break, but they knew we were gonna do another season ahead of time. Um, there's not a lot of that foresight going on now. Uh, people really wanna wait and see how the audience responds, or they just wanna do two seasons and then they're done and they're out. So, it's, it's different now, it's, it's the next evolution in the medium right now with doing streaming, a lot of online viewing and that kind of stuff. Well, hopefully as, uh, as the people that, that really start, I don't wanna say the people, because it's, it's not just, I mean, I guess it is. I mean, I guess when you look at it, everything evolves. If you don't grow, you die. If you don't evolve, you get left behind. Right. I definitely like what Craig was talking like. I didn't realize like Kid Cosmic was uh, something he was developing back in 2009, but he couldn't put it out because they, did, they didn't want serialization. They wanted to pick and choose and mix and match. If I put this one here from one, you can take this one from three and plug and play essentially. I didn't realize that was going on because I just figured if you had a cool story, you had a cool concept, it made sense and you had a name like, Gendy, you had a name like Craig, you had a name like Maxwell, you had a name like David Feist, you had a name like Danny Antonucci, you had a name like any of these guys that I just mentioned, that they would just say, hey, here's some money, go get your crew and put this out there. I didn't realize that that the animation was evolving at that time. It started out early 90s and stuff like that. So that traditional style of animation, and then you start seeing everything go digital. And once everything goes digital, everything starts going 3D. Once everything starts going 3D, you're like, what's next, right? So you, you kind of got to keep up with time. So I, I get it, but it was just, it was, I guess it was hard for me to, to, to really take in, into account that like, oh man, I guess that everybody's looking for the new. Everybody's looking for the different. Nobody wants the same. And then well, you- Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there because what's funny about that is you're, you're right and you're wrong, Julie. Yeah. Um, everybody wants to be different and they, and they want to set trends, but it's really hard to get the people that make that decision to agree, to agree and buy into that because it's a safer bet if they can look around the landscape of stuff that's out there and going, hey, here's the stuff, that, stuff that's successful now. Let's make more of that. Yeah. And on the creative side, you're going, but that's already being done. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And they'll go, well, your idea is, and they'll give you a bunch of reasons why it's too different. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but that's good because it'll stand out. 
it's hard for the, to convince them of that. But here's the funny thing. I can point specifically at uh, projects that succeeded because they were different. Um, well, the, the most obvious in recent history is Adventure Time, which as you may or may not know, and people listening to this may or may not know, it started out as a pilot at Nickelodeon under Fred Seibert's um, uh, banner. He did this before at Cartoon Network. He took it over there and did it very successfully. Penn Ward, who created that show, was a student at CalArts when I was teaching there. And I, I remember very distinctly seeing the same things in Penn that I saw in Craig McCracken, which is he was doing something very unique. So when Penn was doing his pilot for Adventure Time at Nickelodeon, I got a call from the guys, uh, from Fred's guys, and they said, hey, do you want to come over and direct Penn's second short, Bravest Warriors? I said, sure, I'd love to. So I go over, I visit them, they pitch it, I go, no problem. Before I leave, they pull me into a room. His name is Eric Holman. He was the development executive for Fred's company. And he goes, hey, I want to ask you a question about Penn. <laughs> he goes, what do you think of Penn? And I said, I said, Eric, he's either certifiably insane or he's a genius. Doesn't matter because otherwise you're going to get something different than everything else. It's going to be fantastic. You just have to believe in it. And he sat back in his chair and he went, yeah, I think you're right. I feel the same way. Um, and the problem there is the Nickelodeon executives, the people that had their thumb on the green light button, couldn't see it. They, it was too different for what they were doing there at the time. And Fred, to his credit, did everything he could to convince them otherwise. He eventually threw it up on YouTube, got a million views, took it back to them and go, look, look at the comments, look at the views. They still wouldn't do it. But because of his relationship, with people at Cartoon Network, he brought it over. There was a little bit of redevelopment and it became like a huge hit. But people also have to remember the time at which this happened because this was the beauty. We went through a power change at Cartoon Network and they were starting to, pr to produce less animation and more live action at the time. They were pulling away from animation. And really Adventure Time was kind of this last grass, like, I hope this works. Mm -hmm. And they put it on and they never looked back. They were like, why are we doing all this live action stuff? It doesn't have the shelf life. It isn't doing as well. It's not pulling our ratings. And we all went, duh, we knew that. Um, and then they, they started producing more and more stuff. And JG, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but JG Quintel, who you said you love, was a PA on Samurai Jack. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, he used to be the guy that everybody teased on Samurai Jack. When you get him on here, which I'm sure you will, you can ask him, could not have been a nicer guy. Still, he's not that much different now and he's run um, regular show and now close enough, yeah. but he was RPA. And Daniel Chong, who created uh, We Bear Bears, he was RPA on Powerpuff Girls. So a lot of these guys got their foot in the door, you know, learned the trade, got their opportunity and took advantage of it and haven't looked back. Um, and Robert will tell you, that's why he tells everybody, hey, when you get your own show, make sure you hire me because you never know who's going to get their own show. Um, it's just the way it is. There's, so, there's two things I've learned from this show. If you want your show to get picked up, hire Robert. If you want to meet your future <laughs> wife or future husband, you hire Randy. <laughs> there you go. That's all you need to know. And you're, all, and you're set for life. Um, yeah, Robert. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about Robert. I love him to death. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on. Did, 
did you want to stop now? Do you want to pick up another time? It's like 10 o'clock at night for you. Yeah, I, I didn't realize what time it was. It's okay. Uh, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stop it here. Uh, did you, but before we do that, because yeah. you brought up JG, and this is, uh, this is somebody, I want to say he's somebody like a Gendy to me, but he's, somebody, he's something like a Gendy to me, right? So I, I'm pretty sure you've heard the story, but I always like, I always like ending it with some kind of story or something that, uh, you know, it just, it just puts yourself out there. You put a little emotion out there, right? You want to make some kind of connection with people. You want to make a connection with the fans. I try to do the same thing. I try to elicit emotion. I try to elicit a feeling like you guys did with the shows you worked on, right? You want somebody to accept it, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. You want somebody to feel something when they see something. It's the same thing with this podcast. And I remember getting off of, uh, I think it was my third and final deployment when I was on sea duty, on a sea duty rotation for the U.S. Navy. And the first four years of my son, in and out, in and out, in and out, uh, my oldest son. Um, so first four years of his life, essentially, I wasn't here. I was either across the country, across the world, just in different places than he was. It was a part of the job. I had no control over it. And uh, when I came home, it was very difficult to connect with him. Um, because he had went so long without seeing me, you know, um, so all he knew was mom, or all he knew was my mom, because my mom would come down and visit, my brothers would come down and visit, my sisters would come over and visit, you know, so he knew everybody but me, we would talk, we'd video chat and all that other stuff. So he's four or five years old, and uh, it's 2014, so we're in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, right, shore duty, um, it was like a nine to five type of job. Uh, even though I, I was there at seven o'clock, I usually got out about three, but it was a seven to three job, if you will. Um, but one thing I always tried to do with him was see what he was watching or see what he was playing with or see what he was doing. That way I could try to bridge the gap and regular show came up and uh, the same thing when I was flipping through a channel, he's like, stop, 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 stop. I want to watch this um, with the book of life. It happened with a regular show. And then we're just sitting there, we're watching it and I'm looking at him and he's just not blinking. He's doing the same thing I was doing for Book of Life. Wasn't blinking, he was just engrossed in the regular show. And there's this little scene in there with Rigby and Mordecai throw up their hands and like, whoa. And he absolutely lost his shit when he saw that. It was the sweetest little thing seeing a little three, four year old just connect with something. Probably the same way I connected with the shows that I was, I was watching at around his age. So it's cool seeing that like little like the little light bulb go off or the little flash of uh, of something there that that they're they're taking in something and like I said that emotion is getting elicited right. So I was sitting back just watching. I'm like, wow, he really likes this thing. So a couple of days would go by and we'd watch more regular show, more regular show, more regular show, and then we just started doing that walking around the house, throwing up our hands, going whoa. That was our way of like saying hello to each other, right? So it, we we started bridging the gap over, uh, you know, so many months and Christmases and Thanksgiving's gone. Um, we started bridging it over a little show called Regular Show. And he would get into the habit of being at the front door. And we had the storm door. So you could, you know, open the door and a glass door and you could see out and everything. And he would get to the point where he would know what time I would get home or roughly around the time I would get home. And then he was walking around and he would see me and he'd, he'd have his little sippy cup and he'd see me come up. And then he'd point and he'd throw his little hand up and I couldn't hear because my hearing sucks for one. And then the storm door was there and there was some distance, but I knew what he was doing. He would go, whoa. And if I didn't point back and throw my hand up and go, whoa, he would get really, really upset. And then he would just keep going until I did it. 
and uh, that was the that was the way we connected uh, off of my last deployment. So so JG, I would love to have him on. He, he's a he's a busy guy, um, but um, I, I that story is one of like that's a memory that I'll never forget. That's something that that I can thank you and I can thank Robert and I can thank Gendy and I can thank Craig and I can thank David and all those other people that I mentioned for everything growing up. But there's something special about, like I said, missing so much with my oldest son and getting to come home after so many months being gone, missing my wife, missing my dogs, missing my sons or missing my son at that time, um, missing my home, missing my country that I grew up in, just missing all the people and everything like that. That moment is going to be forever just etched right here is that was our little, that was our little hello to each other. And it was all because a blue jay and a raccoon worked at a park. Right. So that, that show, it, it means a little bit more than just, it's just a cartoon. It's just something I laughed at. It, it was, I'm sure, it was a bridge. I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to get JG on here. You got you got to tell him that story. He'll uh, Robert's probably already talked to him, and JJ will. You'll have no idea how much he'll appreciate that. Yeah. Um, because he's got kids himself. He started as a kid. Now he's got kids. But that connection you made with your son because of his show. Yeah. Uh, that that's really going to hit him pretty deep. So you'll have to tell him that. Yeah. Uh, he's he's a you you'll love him to death. Easy going, nice, easy to talk to guy. I've reached out to him for lecturing uh, to students that I'm teaching. He does it without question. He's signed comic books for me so I can sell them at my son's um, school auction. Yeah. Um, so such a nice guy. Doesn't just do a doesn't just do a signature. He'll do a drawing of of Mordecai or Rigby on there. Yeah, he's he's a really genuine nice guy. Which, as you're going to realize if you haven't already, most of the people in this industry are super nice people. Um, some of them, yes, they might be a little socially awkward, uh, but that has that has to do with the creative side or they might be on the spectrum someplace. That just means they're more amazing creatively than others. So it's, it's an interesting connection you find with people in this medium, in this industry, but genuine, most of them, I get like 98, I don't want to embellish, but 98% maybe, truly genuine, nice, decent people yeah. that just have a ton of talent. So, uh, you know, I still enjoy it. Yeah, and, and as you should, man. Uh, like I said, it, it, it's, it was really fun talking to you, and I can't wait for us to do a second part. You might actually, yeah, I think you beat, well, the one with Robert, the second one we did for that Secret Squirrel project, I'll tell you as soon as we get off here. Um, that one, that part won't be released because uh, that's for the project I'm working on. Um, oh. at least not yet uh, it'll be released down the road um, if I decide to do the second part to what I'm doing like I said I'm talking in code here um, but yeah I, I've had nothing but the the most fun time talking to to everybody in the animation field whether it's voice actors writers storyboard artists creators directors whatever it is man you guys have all been fantastic not only with your time but with your stories and just with wanting to talk to me which I've i I don't want to say I don't know why that most people just want to talk. They're like, yeah, I'll talk to you about some stuff I, I did. I'll talk to you about some stuff I created, which I absolutely love. And I'm, I'm floored every time it comes up. Um, 
the only negative two or so if we're talking 98 percent uh the only two percent of people that i've ever had that i will never release their episode and i will never say their names they weren't from the animation field they were very very oh. they were very very mean they were from the movie the movie industry if you will oh. the, live, the live picture people um but nonetheless I, man i like to think of animation as the um well don't take offense to this it's kind of the little redheaded stepchild to the entertainment <laughs> industry. Um, the, the big budgeted live action studios look at us and pat us on the head and send us on our way. And they'll, they'll give us a nod or a wink when we do something good, like a movie makes over hundred million or something, or um, a, something like Adventure Time becomes part of the zeitgeist or that kind of thing. But really they, a lot of times think of themselves as better or more than us. And to be honest, I think most of us are okay with that. Um, we like that our industry is connected to them and sh has a lot of shared elements, um, but we're okay with, you know, we don't want all of the BS that deals with that live action stuff. We don't want all the ego. We don't want all that um, backstabbing, that kind of stuff. Let us make our little cartoons because we're just fans ourselves making things hoping there's other people who are fans of the stuff we're making. Um, but yeah, I, I've dealt a little bit with some people in live action too. I understand your point. I feel the same way. Uh, I would, not that everybody's like that, but my choice would be to surround myself with people from the animation industry if I had that choice. So, but, uh, and I was, wanted to say to you, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, I have members of my family that have also served so it, that's, that's an amazing thing. You, you gloss over it a lot of the time in these talks, but that's a big deal. Being apart from your family is a big deal. I know that that can be a strain. And it's nice that animation helps with that reconnecting when you come back in. And whether it's athletics or cartoons or cooking or whatever, anytime a parent can connect with a child, that's a big deal. Yeah, it really is, man, Ex especially when you see so many of them that don't have a mother or don't have a father that's really in their life, you know, because there's a lot of people out there like myself. I brought that up numerous times where I didn't have a father growing up. Um, so it's it's something that I try and I mess up all the time as, as being a father. I mess up all the time being a husband. I mess up all the time being a friend. It's just what people are, man. We're a mess. Uh, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. Um, that texture and that textile, right? You can see the erase marks. That's what we're trying to do right now. We're trying to erase those little marks. Um, but like I said, man, this has been part one of possibly 14 parts. We don't know how many of this is going to go, Randy. So like I said, I had fun. I hope you had fun. I know the fans are going to have did. fun. Uh, he's been Randy. I've been Julian. Make sure you check back because we'll release this one either together or in two or three different parts, um, but they'll all come at the same time. Um, but like I said, he's been Randy. I've been Julian. This has been the What's In My Head podcast. Thank you guys so much and good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's In My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.